You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to episode 394 of Video Monsters. I'm Nathan. I'm Eric. I'm Dan. And tonight, we're peeling back the layers of analysis in much the same way that a two-bit huckster peels off his toupee to get a trim by his barber as we discuss The Man Who Wasn't There from 2001, directed by Joel Cohen. Uh, is this one of the ones that would be uncredited Ethan Cohen? Um, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I think they're they... all uncredited. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. There. What was it? Was it the one? What did they do after this? I think what it with whichever movie they did after this was the one where they were officially the Cohen brothers. I can't remember. I looked this up the other day, and now I don't remember. Not that it matters, but yes, it is a, a Cohen brothers <laughs> picture. Yeah, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, the exact breakdown of the work. I, who knows? Do, do even they know? I mean, probably. I would say Ethan Cohen knows. <laughs> um, let's Maybe he does. Here. No, th- okay. You want to know which movie it is? <laughs> the uh, first movie where he is the credited director is The Lady Killers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's the first official Cohen Brothers movie. They chose poorly. That's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> That is very fascinating. Well, maybe uh, it's because like one of them said, "Like I'm not taking the sole blame for this one. We both got to." <laughs> you know what's Every, weird though? Our worst film. We both have to be credited. <laughs> it's so weird because I'm looking at it on IMDb, and he is listed as the uncredited director for every single previous uh, Coen Brothers or you know Joel Cohen film, except for the man who wasn't there. Actually, it's the only one where it doesn't <clears> have him listed as uncredited. That's very Weird. interesting. I wonder why. Well, there you go. So fine. Joel Cohen. <laughs> I <laughs> I also like that in uh, Wikipedia where it has the, uh, the the filmography where it has all of their films and, you know, the year it came out, the title, director, writer, producer, whatever. Um, if it was just one of them, it has their name. If it was both of them, it says yes. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so for the lady killers on uh, under director it just says yes to indicate that both of them uh, were the directors that does not really matter what matters is that we are finally finally talking about uh, the man who wasn't there and correct me if i'm wrong but this is the first coen brothers film that we've talked about second second we also did inside Lewin davis oh right how could you forget so many my, reasons my favorite why coen brothers put, movie that's Maybe that's why I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. It was specifically our, because I wanted to do it. <laughs> our it second Coen Brothers film. Uh, yeah, I can't believe that I forgot that. 
Um, but I did. And this is also closing out our monochrome for the holidays. Uh, black and white films post 1966. Now that we are approaching February because, you know, COVID and delays and all, all the reasons uh, and the holidays and, and the holidays and just anything that could have gotten in the way of us recording has gotten in the way. And so I, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the last episode or not, but as I was going back through and editing all the episodes that I'm about to post, hopefully tomorrow, uh, listening back through, like I can actually hear the progression of sickness moving through my family. So (laughs) when we recorded the handmaiden, it was like, Oh, sorry guys, my son's sick. And then as we were recording our black and white punch out, it was like, guys, I, I I think my other son is sick. And then when we finally got around to recording Tetsuo, it was like, guys, sorry, I'm I'm a little under the weather, but I'll, I'll I'll power through. So yeah, there's a uh, lovely progression of, uh, illness in, in the Simmons family as, uh, as we went through the last few episodes so that was fun but not what we're talking about uh finishing up our black and white movies post 1966 and if you did not catch our popcorn punch out then how we got to uh the man who wasn't there is i added it to the survey as well as to the skull of decisions then in round one uh it won against tragedy of Macbeth, so a cohen brothers film against a cohen brother film then in round two, uh, it won against Down by Law because Eric does not like um, Down by Law. Uh, that's true. And then not a fan. in the round three, in the final four, it was uh, a tie with Lenny. And I used my chaos card to advance the man who wasn't there because I needed to. We needed to talk about this movie. Yeah, I'm glad we did. I'd never seen this one before. It's one of the few Coen Brothers pictures I'd never seen, <laughs> uh, which is so bizarre to me because I'm such a huge junkie for film noir. I don't know why it took me so long to get to this one. Well, and the great thing about uh, this is it also caused me to watch yeah, most of the Coen Brothers movies. Uh, there, there were a few that I hadn't seen before. So I watched all of them except for Barton Fink. I still haven't seen that one because I cannot find my copy of it. And frustration uh, you are having it not finding it is going to lead <laughs> so perfectly into that film. <laughs> it's it's actually the universe just trying to like set you up to really yeah. enjoy Barton Fink. Yeah, you need a John Goodman to come and find that film for you very quickly. <laughs> I've I've literally been through thousands of my movies trying to find it, and and it's possible that I've just overlooked it. But I was like, the first time uh, when I was looking for the man who wasn't there, because, you know, that's what we're talking about. Any Coen Brothers movie that I saw, I was like, oh, let me go ahead and pull this one out because I know that I want to rewatch all of them. Mm-hmm. And I missed a few because I didn't really think about that until after I'd gotten through a, a few of the boxes. And then going back through, it was like, okay, I am very specifically looking for Barton Fink. And I still could not find it. So, <laughs> so that's frustrating. Uh, but Do you think the problem is you own too many movies? <clears throat> and, uh, no, that is no. <laughs> there's, there's no question that that is not a problem. Um, no. If anything, it's that, that is, I don't. That is a solution, not a problem. <laughs> the problem is that I don't own enough movies because well, I don't I, own enough copies of Martin Fink. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You have to own multiple copies of it so you can like sporadically place it all throughout your collection, just to just you know. I make it easier to find. I'm pretty sure that I have four copies of Miller's Crossing, uh, and I found each of those. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the problem is not not having enough. It's not, or the problem is not having too many. It's not having enough. 
The other great thing about us doing the uh, the man who wasn't there is <laughs> this is going to hopefully soon lead to our Coen Brothers ranking popcorn punch out, where we're actually <laughs> going to decide on the uh, the official Video Monsters top three Coen Brothers films. That's yeah, that's that's an exciting and terrifying proposition because mm-hmm. there's so there are so many. I know. Great we need, we need like, to find a way to eliminate two right off the bat, though. Like, <laughs> I mean, we I, like there are certain ones I do not even want in the in the skull. <laughs> <laughs> like fuck those. That's, get them out of here. Get pulled, and other ones do not. I will lose my shit. <laughs> I mean, that's not how the skull of decisions work. <laughs> uh, I know, and I'm very aware that I now want to break the system we helped create. But uh, <laughs> the the chaos is an integral part of the system. I mean, it's, it's, there are some systemic issues with the yeah. with the popcorn punch out that we need to address. <laughs> we have to dismantle the system. <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. These are uh, these are things that we have created that now we just have to suffer through. Because the agony is part of the fun, right? Mm-hmm. We are truly Frankenstein. That's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> that's, that's what we're forced to tell each other uh, when when one of us is either weeping or swearing. It's like, guys, it's it's part of the fun. I, that's, that's what you signed up for. Not knowing what you <laughs> signed up for when you signed up for it. All right. Uh, enough about that. Let's start diving into the man who wasn't there. Dan. What is the official Video Monsters uh, review and a recommendation for the man who wasn't there, which we will be hearing for the first time? Because once again, <laughs> Dan does not tell us what he's going to say. Now I can't All right. For the listeners, Dan just turned off his lights. This is appropriate lighting for this. Movies. It's always about a movie. Three of us just sitting alone in the dark, separate rooms acting like it brings us all together, participants in some kind of demented children's sing-along. We share our opinions, if you can even call the endless prattling we carry on with sharing. People talk too much these days, especially us. And even when we plan and think about what we're going to say in advance, does that make it any more worthwhile to hear? Hell if I know. The motion picture we're supposed to discuss is made by two brothers, like that matters a spit. In this world where isolation is often the end goal, do familiar relations even matter? Regardless, they talk a lot, as do their characters. They seem to have a lot to say about this barber who dreams of becoming a dry cleaner. Pie-in-the-sky stuff for a man who hasn't even done the sex activity with his wife in years. Not exactly a go-getter, this barber. But what monster wants to be a go-getter in this endless rat race of a world anyway? But this easygoing gent somehow gets pulled into murder, a murderous situation that he's unsure of how to weasel his way out of. And we enjoy his misery. We revel in it. And we enjoy discussing it, even if no one gives a damn about the thoughts in the dark void. It's what we do. We're podcasters. We're video monsters. Bruh. Fucking vote. Oh, God. I had to mute myself because I was like, just losing my mind with joy <laughs> the entire time okay also just like i wish that we recorded the video of this because dan like literally turned the lights out in the room for dramatic effect <laughs> and it was incredible <laughs> oh god if only that time to light myself properly or had roger deacons like like you know yeah, if only roger deacons 
call him up, make sure you get him to stop by for a minute. Well, and yeah. the I, I am, I am positive that that only added to the atmosphere and the mood of you know really getting into the mindset of saying that because with the lights on, have been like eh, we're podcasts. This is what we do. It, it wouldn't have had the same uh, gloomy gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite lovely, Dan. That was uh, maybe your best work yet. Oh, <laughs> I just put more on for next time. <laughs> <laughs> Setting a high bar for yourself. Yeah. Damn it. Can this continue thing? It's the worst. You got to be more like uh, more like Ed Crane and just kind of like you know hang out in the background and <laughs> not <laughs> not make yourself stand out so much. Ah, <laughs> oh. I know. Ed. I am no Ed Crane. <laughs> Let's start talking about Ed Crane because ah, uh, there's okay. <clears throat> per usual, we got tons of things to say that, like Dan said, amuses ourselves. Um, and also, if this is the first episode that you've listened to us, we're, we're going to get into spoilers. We're going to analyze everything. That's what we do. Let's start with Eric. Eric, you said, <laughs> well, first off, uh, this is the first time that you've seen the man who wasn't there. So yes. I like starting with the freshest perspective, but uh-huh. you also said before we started recording that uh, this episode was a little daunting because of how much there is to chew on in this movie. Do tell. Yeah. I mean, as is per usual with code brothers movies for me, I, it feels like every single thing that happens with in this movie or every single shot or gesture um, every single little detail, of which there are so many, um, it feels like it all carries some kind of significance or some kind of weight or symbol um, that it all has meaning in some way or another. And I mean, the Coens are always great at writing dialogue, um, but like just all the great like hard-boiled dialogue that you get from Ed Crane's monologues and just so many great one-liners, so many things to really chew on and consider. Um this, it, I think my biggest takeaway from this movie, watching it this first time, is that I can't believe it's not more discussed in their work. Like, it feels like it's mm-hmm. almost always, it feels like it's considered more of like minor, of a minor work from them. And I don't know if that's just because I don't hear people talk about it or water, it doesn't come up as much. But like, I feel like this is a pretty major piece from them it, it I, almost I have feels, assumptions as to why i, I yeah, definitely I, do i mean it's a fairly uncommercial kind of film i would say even by the standards well, that, that they had to go and win an oscar not long after that which kind of overshadowed everything sure yeah yeah absolutely um but like i am um, i don't know it feels like so many of the themes that they play with throughout their filmography is all wrapped. This almost feels like it could be the last Coen Brothers movie because it feels like it it touches on everything that is covered in all of their other movies in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels almost like the purest distillation of their voice outside of something, maybe like a serious man. It, it which does feel like it could I be their senior thesis of their movies. <laughs> a bit, yeah. Um and I, I want to get back to A Serious Man later because I think that it's a pretty interesting... Like, watching those two movies side by side would be a really interesting experience because I think they're kind of the same movie but on very opposite ends of the spectrum that they're... 
Sorry, I was totally distracted by what the hell was that noise? <laughs> I was moving some things on my phone and I hit a fucking play thing on another. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, Eric, I think that it's fascinating that uh, that you pair uh, the man who wasn't there and a serious man together. I, I want to talk about that, but I also don't want to dwell on that too long because I want to save uh, a good bit of content for when we do our punch out eventually. Um, there, I mean, again, there are echoes of all their work in this, in, in one way or uh-huh. another. But like a serious man, I think is the one because this. Is, I mean, all of their movies are this kind of are these kind of like absurd existential comedies in one respect or another. And I feel like the the kind of uh, point that they hammer home in this movie <laughs> is the same point that they're really trying to get at in a serious man in a very different way. Um. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to reveal too much at the moment <laughs> yet. But but yes, I feel like they're trying to hammer home the same point, but in a very different way. Um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say, I think that this is, for how bleak the man who wasn't there is, I think that it is maybe one of their most like hopeful and optimistic movies. Whereas A Serious Man is a much more nihilistic kind of film, in my yeah. mind. Um <laughs> And they're both like questioning the meaning of life in one way or another and why anything matters. And it's so fascinating. It's one of the things I love most about the Coen brothers, how their movies, again, they, it feels like everything means something. And they're constantly telling the audience that none, none of this shit means anything. And I love that. So I just think it's so fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I oh God, we, uh, I, I really am trying not to get too far into some of those things uh, because two reasons. One, we can't have this episode be six hours long. And I know that if we start talking about all of the Coen Brothers films, we're going to. And also, I want to save some content for the uh, for the punch out. But yeah, the, the way that they're able to keep telling the same themes from so many different varied perspectives and the way that for me at least it never feels like i'm watching the same movie twice even when there's a lot of overlap even when it's like a very clear coen brothers movie to me it never feels repetitive it never feels like oh well they're doing this again oh all right Mm -hmm. um so one of the things that i wanted to to mention really quick eric since you brought this up in terms of why you think or, you know, why isn't it talked about more within um, within their filmography? I, I think there's a couple of things at play. I think that one of the reasons is it's black and white. And this came out in 2001. And so a lot of people in 2001, you know, they just didn't. I, I don't think that black and white movies had really come back into fashion with being, you know, like the, the without it being like super artsy. And so I don't know if people really knew how to take it at the time, but more importantly, why I think that this film has been a little bit lost to time, uh, just in terms of how people view it, looking at what came before it and looking at what came after it. So you've got, you know, the, their early films, which are obviously iconic because that's where they really made a name for themselves. But then you have Fargo the big Lebowski, Oh brother, where art thou? And the man who wasn't there. So you've got one of their biggest, if not their biggest and most well-known movies uh, in Fargo, you've got, you know, the, the cult classic and 
the probably the raunchiest of all of their movies in you know the the one that's probably the most dude bro audience not necessarily uh the, the film itself but has certainly attracted uh the most college freshmen with uh, the big lebowski uh-huh. then you've got probably their most uh their most um universal movie with oh brother where art thou you know like in, in everything they've done that one is probably the one that the most people have seen if they've never seen another coen brothers film because you know like yeah that's that's the one that you would show your mom type of movie <laughs> and the man who wasn't there isn't those movies it's still a fucking great movie but it's not those movies and then after it you have intolerable cruelty which is good you have the lady killers i've never seen it which <laughs> it, it, it's good um then you have the lady killers which has a lot of issues and then uh they were part of uh parish and then they start getting back to form with no country for old men and so I could they followed very, up the lady killers with no country for old men. <laughs> I think it was because they had to. They yeah, had to. They, they, they had to go it was dark. Like a, there was a big comeback narrative essentially with that one mm. after I mean yeah I guess the man who wasn't there is probably kind of lumped in with that like low point you know mm. what, what is considered a low point with intolerable cruelty and the lady killers. Right and so I, I think it's because coming off of again oh brother where art thou with it being if if O Brother was the entry point for a lot of people, you know, again, not people who had seen Racing Arizona and Big Lebowski and all this other stuff, but they're just like, oh, what's this? A, a quasi Southern gospel esque musical type yeah, well, movie? Well, it was a, it was a cultural touchstone for a while there too, because like it, like that album was like a Christmas gift you gave like an uncle you didn't know what to get for Christmas, because like every that you know i'm pretty sure it won they won oscars it won grammys it's like everybody had that soundtrack it's because it's a fucking you know, great even if they had seen the movie they knew that music yeah no yeah, which actually uh was not nominated for well i guess that it wouldn't be eligible like the m- music wouldn't be eligible for an oscar because it's a mm. uh, technically not an original composition it's it's all like old gospel music right yeah. um, but i would say I, i'm pretty sure it probably was like won Grammys and stuff. I don't know that for yeah. sure. Off the I know time. they played it at the Oscars, though. They played, like, Man of Constant Star. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, <clears> you, <throat> you, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear yeah, Oprah's Art Thou, and instantly you hear, In Constant Sorrow. Like, you just, you it, it, it instantly comes to mind. So, oh, God, such a great, we, we can yeah, talk it, about it. it. People <laughs> know T-Bone Burnett's name because of that album. You know, right. because of the soundtrack. Yeah, people rediscovered Ralph Stanley because of it. Mm-hmm. Ah, I love his voice uh, as countryish and uh, the old timey as it is. So, so yeah, like everyone knew Oh Brother Where Art Thou. And so if that's the movie that you saw and it's like, oh, from the people who made Oh Brother Where Art Thou and you go into it expecting anything even remotely like that. And mm-hmm. then you get Billy Bob Thornton having an existential crisis in what a lot of people consider a very boring and dull movie where nothing happens because it's a barber trying to become a dry cleaner. <laughs> and then God, there's the, murder the and bold, <laughs> the boldness of making the inciting incident of this movie. Like the inciting incident of this movie is I want to invest in dry cleaning. Yeah. It's so insane. and so incredible. <laughs> I mean, like 
I would I would even question whether or not he was even having a crisis. <laughs> right. It, yeah. You know, like, he seems like pretty. It's fascinating that he like seems pretty. Cont- he's not content necessarily, but like he's not. He doesn't really have any kind of outward emotion like he doesn't seem frustrated even like kind of like dryly is like yep i'm living the good life or whatever i got a house i've got a job whatever like mm-hmm. he's he's essentially living the the middle class dream of like yeah i've got everything you know mm-hmm. but, but I, what else is out there for me but, but i got big big dreams of dry cleaning <laughs> well and that's the thing he has it's so fascinating like that this is a movie where the protagonist has basically no ambition and there's really no there's no real reason given for why he kind of perks up at this opportunity why he even like considers it like he is clearly not necessarily happy with his life but he just seems so indifferent about everything i mean yeah i mean not even long after that when he he's having the dinner season and he's like yeah they're they're probably having an affair Eh, good for them yeah, he's basically just like, ah, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Like, I, yeah, I have a theory that he's a very like asexual character. Well, I I have a theory that in my mind uh, answers a lot of things, but I kind of want to save it to the end uh, and not really have a reveal. But I, I kind of want to discuss things without my overarching theory first. Mm-hmm. Because the, the the main question, one of the main questions that I have related to what I asked both of you uh, before the podcast, for me, recontextualizes so much about the movie that I don't want to start there because I want to discuss everything else uh, okay. and, and then get to, all right, now that we've discussed all of this, here's my thought that maybe puts a slightly different spin on some of these things and you know much like a lot of the movies we've discussed but especially uh like the ones that we've been covering lately with raging bull and tetsuo i don't think that it matters like i i think that my theory of here's what i think is going on really doesn't matter because if if i'm right i do think that it adds a lot to the movie but if i'm wrong i don't think that it takes anything away from the movie and so it's like regardless of if this theory is uh what the coen brothers intended if i'm way off base to me it doesn't make any difference whatsoever um you know like if if i was able to actually talk to joel and ethan cohen and they're like oh yeah no that's a great theory you're also an idiot no absolutely not like okay cool i still love the movie just as much as opposed to other movies where it almost needs that uh like um um why uh, langoliers you know like for me i need <laughs> oh, that God. recontextualization to make the langoliers a more enjoyable film because if i'm wrong then it just kind of sucks and if i'm right it makes it good so that, that that's yeah you're, save it. To, which to for the audience's sake if they haven't listened to this uh inane bullshit before <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry Nathan. but yeah you you think that it's a deliberate like soap opera satire yes even though there's absolutely nothing in the film to suggest that that's oh, what it's supposed no. to be they're absolutely other than just there's bad acting they're absolutely a stuff in the film but it's uh, and and even some of the things that uh, are directly in the the book that I think do give credence to that theory but that doesn't matter uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to save things till the end there's gonna be a lot of things that we talk about that I might not say quite as much as you're used to it's because some of those thoughts are uh, percolating until the end uh, yeah. so 
I want to kind of drive this conversation through the eyes of of Eric because again this is the first time that you'd seen this movie so I want that to kind of be the 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 guiding path of how we're approaching things mm-hmm. um and, and and yeah so I I love the fact that the inciting incident is he wants to be a dry cleaner because of the way that the Coen brothers are playing with form and and the way that they play with film noir and I mentioned this uh, in our last episode. I think I mentioned the last episode where Raising Arizona was the first Coen Brothers movie that I saw. And so mm. everything that I had seen after that is through the lens of the Raising Arizona comedy. If I'd seen Blood Simple first, oh man, I would have a completely different relationship with the Coen Brothers. But the first thing I saw was Raising Arizona. So even their. Which I think is probably true for most, for a lot of people, Raising it, Arizona. Probably. Yeah, it seems like it was, it was a gateway. It was my first. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of like their first big hit. Yeah, I guess that's really that's their second movie, right? After God, what a what a pivot! Like we're gonna make Blood Simple this like down and dirty neo noir, and then move on to Raising Arizona, which is just this ins- absurd comedy. Which I mean, does kind of have some like, uh, and then jump back to Miller's Crossing, if I remember and, yeah. my yeah. mind correctly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> But but like someone, if if someone had seen Miller's Crossing or Blood Simple or No Country for Old Men or some of their darker movies first, and then saw one of their comedies, it would be like, yeah, these guys know the dark side of life, but they also have a, a comedic sensibility. I think Oh Brother was my first Coen Brothers movie. Fascinating. It must I'm, have been. Oh man, <laughs> I'm so curious as to maybe that's why you love Inside Lewin Davis so much is because you were. Uh, I like their introduction stuff. was yeah a musical. Like the folksy stuff, um, but but yeah. So but, yeah, with approaching things for me, with my context being comedy, everything that I watch of theirs, I like I I always see that underlying layer of comedy, even their more serious, darker movies. Like the the comedy always stands out for me. Yeah, and and so in in the man who wasn't there, I don't. I mean, it's it's funny. But it's the not man like who was there trying. is extremely funny. Oh, it's I think so it's funny! A very funny movie. <laughs> but I feel like the reason it's not jokey funny. It's funny in that sort of you know existential. It's very like dry and matters. sardonic, and it's, right. it's mostly funny because of the absurdity of it. Like it's it's funny in a way that's not necessary. So, like for example, there's a an amazing scene right at the beginning of the movie, whenever you uh you know Ed. Crane, Billy Bob Thornton is um, doing his monologuing at the beginning and introducing you to his wife, <clears> talking about her. And he says, "We go to church." Uh, he talks about going to church with her, and he says, "Yeah, we go mostly on Tuesday nights." And there's this <laughs> incredible shot of like a cross, of like a cru- uh, the crucifix, a Christ on a crucifix, and then it pans down to a priest, and he's calling out bingo numbers, <laughs> and, and he's. he's- Barely even playing bingo. Yeah, yeah, he's barely even playing bingo. Like his wife's like, "Are you paying attention to your card or whatever?" And she wins. It's Frances McDormand, <laughs> of course, because she's mm. the best, and she's in all these movies. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, like it's just such an incredible visual gag, and so much of this movie is so funny because of, specifically because of like how bold it is that they're playing with so much banality. Like so much of this movie is just about how dry and boring his life is and how he's stuck in this kind of like middle class malaise and mediocrity. 
Like, <laughs> there's so often whenever he's in there cutting hair, you're just listening to like the most inane bullshit, small talk kind of stuff that you could possibly listen to. They're talking about cars and uh, well, I don't know. I can't even remember what it is. Like, it's supposed to be boring by design. And it's like, not only is this guy so, like, he's just constantly surrounded by nothing. Yep. And he is completely unengaged with all of it. Like, he's his job is to be a barber, and generally that's a like a very sociable kind of <laughs> position. You know, like, as a barber, you would be talking to your clients, learning about them or whatever, and he is... He does not talk at all. Yeah. It's, Which it's to be like perfectly honest, that's like my ideal barber. I, I go in there and I'm like, cut my hair. I don't want to talk to you. Like this is. Exactly. I don't want to chat. Yeah. I hate it when I have a barber who chit chat. So I would love to let him oh, cut man, my hair. It, you know what's worse than a chatty barber? A chatty podcaster? Uh, no. If it was not a chatty podcaster, it'd be a boring podcast. Chatty, <laughs> chatty urologist? Ooh. <laughs> Wrong, <laughs> wrong hole. Chatty proctologist. <laughs> Ch- uh, wrong hole again. A chatty dentist. Chatty. D- oh yeah, because you can't respond. Yeah. yeah. They, <laughs> they always ask questions and then shove their hand in your mouth. I was like, what? Okay. Yep. Uh, I've I've decided whenever they do that, just to keep talking through it, like rather than oh. wait to say anything. Just like, so how have you been? Things going. <laughs> and they're just like, what? You heard me. Uh, so of course I'm also the type of person that, uh, when, when I schedule my dentist appointments in as much as possible, I schedule them for half past two. Oh you know, my God. Two thirty. I knew you were going to do this. 30. You were exactly the, like you're fucking John Polito <laughs> in this movie, basically like <laughs> just like talking about whatever bullshit. Way out yeah, of line. Look at this. Yeah. Oh, that's another, yeah. he talks about his wig so, and he's like, I love, and that's the other thing too. Like this movie is getting it. So like everybody in this movie around Billy Bob has like their ambitions are so like mediocre. Like he's like, yeah, I want to start a dry cleaning business, and he's like, he acts like it's the biggest thing ever. He talks about how he's making payments future. on his hairpiece. John Polito mm. is. He's like, yeah, look at this hairpiece. You'd never know it. Blah blah blah. Like I'm still making payments on it. And then like James Gandolfini's like, yeah. I inherited a store from my wife, from my wife's father, or from my father-in-law, mm-hmm. or whatever. And my biggest ambition is to open up a new well, nerd liquors or whatever, and <laughs> a new annex. That's some mm-hmm. of the comedy that that I was talking about. Where it's just, I I love the fact that they are using like very true noir form. It doesn't feel like they are making fun of noir films it feels like they are lovers of noir absolutely fully engaging in that style but then almost satirizing or or parodying it where you you take all of those noir noir tropes but give them the most like mundane just small town boringness that you can so the protagonist It's like pulling it out of like the typical criminal underworld yeah. and making it in a very Fargo-esque kind of way, making it like about a normal dude who just like stumbles his way into a criminal plot. Yeah, and even the, the 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 quote unquote femme fatale of the movie, he has zero sexual interest in. Yeah. Like, which I, I want to talk about that because he says things that lead you to think that he is lecherous. And then he says and does other things that lead you to think, mm-hmm. you know, he's just maybe a slightly inappropriate 
the uncle type and then it's yeah. just, it is he just likes the music that's all yeah and well which we'll, also yeah, plays we'll into my larger theory that we'll get to pretty interesting uh but but yeah the, the way that the, the the inciting incident is a dry cleaner the way yeah, that like the big mob boss is a department store owner it's the, tony soprano and he's yeah. like yeah he's like He's just a guy with a temper who really, yeah. really wants to open up a new store because this is Ooh. his legacy. Like whose big time war contributions were like he was a desk clerk in San Diego. <laughs> you know, has all these great wartime stories like a lot of noir characters do. You know, they were in the big one. But no, he oh, was God. he was in an office in that, San Diego. <laughs> that bit where they're sitting at the dinner table and he's telling the story about Arnie Bragg about <laughs> how the he was the skinny little kid, and yeah. the uh, was it? Wait, which war was he supposed to be? World War Two? Is that what it was? I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, it they was, were supposed to be like he was eaten. They found him eaten, and he's like, "Yeah, what do I tell my wife every time that I that she makes me dinner? I don't like what I, I got Arnie Bragg again or what? Like I don't know. It's so <laughs> stupid. It's like the and, worst kind of like dumbass story mm-hmm. that somebody could tell, and he's like a total piece of shit, and then like Francis McDormand just finds it absolutely hysterical. Oh. And his wife has like the most horrified alarmed look on her face yes. throughout the entire story. Oh my just, god, her face deer does not head change. She, yeah, the deer in the headlight looks so, oh god, what a, oh, I need man. to, who is that actor? She's so good. When she shows up to uh, to tell Billy Bob Thornton's character about how uh, she she knows what's really going on. The government <laughs> is trying to put him away because they talked about an alien abduction. Like that scene is so beautifully shot, and it it gives you so much that noir style with that uh, with that dark shadows and with uh, the the veil in front of her face. And it's there's so much mm-hmm. about it where again it's such a beautiful that beautifully scene- composed scene. It's Catherine Borowitz is the actor's name. That scene is incredible because it's like played tense at first where like uh, Ed gets a knock at the door. Yeah. And he we're jumping all over the place, but that's fine. Cause that's I, I got to talk about this because it's incredible. He gets a knock at the door and he opens it and the, the shot like holds on his face a little bit longer than you would expect it to as if like there's nobody there. And then it just hard cuts to her staring at him. Mm-hmm. And like it's legitimately startling. Yeah. The, like the look that's on her face and with the veil and everything like for a split second, I was like, God damn it, is that a fucking alien staring at him? And then she starts yes. talking about aliens. Yeah, you expect this like hard boiled, like, you know, he was a bastard who used to beat me and I'm fine that he's dead or, you know, something that you would expect in a film noir. And she, you know, like, mm-hmm. no, we saw aliens. We were well, it's It's great too because, like, you, she says, like, I, I know what's really going on. And, like, my first thought was, like, oh, you know, maybe she found out about him in some way. Mm-hmm. She's going to expose him or whatever. But like, also my immediate thought after that, I was, I was like, that's that's too conventional for for this kind of movie. Like, what is yeah. this going to be? <laughs> and yeah, whenever it took a turn into Alien, like that's that's the other thing about this movie that's so crazy. It's so bold in how it goes from dry cleaning to actual UFOs, <laughs> and. I understand. That's another thing where it's like if somebody saw this movie, that's the that's the moment where you're like, I'm out. Like I can't <laughs> do this because it's such a hard left turn. Um, but God damn it, do I love it? It's so good. <laughs> but but again, like it 
that is one of the most noir esque shot scenes. And, and it I, is, yeah. And I think that's because yeah. it's leaning even more into the visuals, knowing that it's steering away from what you would expect. Yeah. And and so like there's that interplay between what you're watching and and uh what you're hearing. And and again, just the way that the Cohen brothers are able to use expectations and and to use what you know of noir it's just it it is it is a beautiful beautiful film that is just i I, ah god it is shot so amazingly well yeah Um, roger deakins shot this one and uh he's yet again didn't win an oscar for it he's the great he was nominated it's the only academy award this movie got a nomination for um but yeah, it was not. This movie was Ridiculous. shot in color too, which is really fascinating. Yeah. Like I think I sent you guys the images. There, there are color versions of the movie out there because, like, apparently they had to shoot it in color. Well, it's not that they had to. Uh, it, they they talked about this a little bit in the uh, liner notes on the DVD. But oh, okay. it was shot in color. It was shot in color negative rather than black and white because uh, you could actually get a cleaner image with the with color. And so they did color so that it didn't look quite as grainy and it didn't look quite as old timey. Like they wanted, they wanted to give you the, uh, you know, the, the old timey forties noir feel, but using modern technology to, you know, to clean it up and, and to, to look more modern. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's a, a perfect example of how the Coen brothers approach film and why so many of their films, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say that makes sense too. Like they're they're like a pretty cutting edge group. I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou was like the first film to use like a digital intermediate intermediary for like the uh, color timing on that film. That's why it has that kind of sepia tone to it. Um, and and yeah, with the man who wasn't there, like if you look at the color images of it, it's very much in the same kind of like visual aesthetic style as. Oh, Brother Warthel or Inside Lewin Davis. It looks it has very yeah. similar to a lot of like <clears throat> beige colors and stuff because I assume it probably just would work well in black and white. But um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah, the, I, I read that they had to release it in color in some markets though, like overseas. What? Contractually, they were obligated to release color versions of it in certain places. I don't ever want to see this movie in color. Like that just, I it does not. feel like it would <laughs> not work at all. No, yeah. not even a little bit. I mean, like, um, <clears throat> fascinating to see those color images, though, because they, yeah, I, it would be. I would be curious to see it, just like, <clears throat> just to know what the experience is like and see how different it would be. But yeah, I don't think it would be nearly as effective. Yeah, I mean, they've they've done a lot of period movies, and so I think that it would be fine, but I don't think that it would work the same being in color rather than black and white because I I feel. And again, maybe it's just me, but I, I feel like watching it in black and white puts you even further into that noir feeling and and it gives you that mm-hmm. mindset of some of the tropes to expect so that then when it leans into them, like that, that's a little bit more of what you're expecting. And if it was if it was in color, I don't know, I, I feel like it would have been a lot more just run of the mill. Just like, yep, here's an old a movie, a period piece. Eh, whatever. There's a lot of narration. All right, fine. Like I, I don't know. I don't think that it would have had nearly the same impact. Um, yeah, I feel. I feel like they're like, well, fuck. People didn't understand that Lebowski was a was a film noir 
riff. So uh, we really got to hammer it home. Let's make it in fucking black and white. Man, one yeah. of their movies is not film noir. Blood Simple. They are really noir. So, yeah. Racing Arizona. Absolutely film noir. Miller's Crossing. Uh, noir-ish. There's definitely, yeah, definitely noir elements mm-hmm. to it. Um, this one and Far, yeah, Fargo is very much like a neo-noir kind of thing. Like all of their uh, their work has its toe in that in some way. Yeah. This one, of course, is the most explicit, not only aesthetically, but I think just like in terms of the storyline, it's very much ripping off like double indemnity and mm-hmm. like the James M. Kane yeah. novels. Um. In terms of like the the uh, the plot that Billy Bob Thornton kind of stumbles into, <laughs> um, but again, that's what's so great about it is it's like it's doing exactly a lot of the like it's it's the whole like great artist steal, good artist borrow with it kind of thing, whatever. It's like they're straight up ripping off these plot lines whole cloth but they're putting them in a different kind of milieu where it's like it's very much focusing on like that kind of americana 40s uh suburban vibe <laughs> um yep. in a way that's like taking the piss out of it and, uh, and that i think is so fascinating and so like oddly relatable <laughs> you know like you um you really understand why it, it, it's fun to see the awakening of Billy Bob Thornton's character because I feel oh. like so often when you're a working stiff and a parent and all this stuff it's like your day does feel like a montage of cutting hair or whatever it's like I'm just getting through the day going through the motions and you know I, I you know most of us never really wake up from that at a certain point like at a certain point years have gone by and you realize that you've just been doing the same thing over and over every day yep uh speaking of billy bob thornton and that epiphany can come from anywhere <laughs> and i love that in this movie it's from john Polito. <laughs> yep uh speaking of billy bob thornton i adore his acting very specifically i love how much of uh, how much of his acting in the movie with the other characters is just physical acting. You, you've got the narration. He's an absolutely brilliant physical actor. Yeah, he's having to sell I mean, so much of his reaction with the facial expressions. It's like you, you, as the audience, the narration fills in a lot of those gaps for us. So even if he didn't do as good of a job with, with the physical acting, we as audience would still get what we need but his ability to still play the scene so that the people he's interacting with are like it, it feels so much more genuine just the way that he's responding to everything and I, I just feel like it adds such a, a complex layer to this film uh, with yeah with, with just simple eye movements and simple facial reactions and just the way that he exists on screen is the such a vital part of this movie the the best thing about it i think like he always like even though he doesn't talk very much or react very much you get the sense that he's always engaged in some way like mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it is because of just he's so aware of how he comes across on screen and i think what really sells it is the stillness of the performance like I, I think I, I think of the scene where he's in the hotel room with John Polito 
and John Polito's like doing the like come hither motion and he's like coming onto him, which is really <laughs> fascinating. And Billy Bob Thornton's sitting there just like with his kind of shoulders slumped. And like you just there are like a couple of shot reverse shots where neither one of them are speaking, they're just staring at each other. And Billy Bob Thornton is just completely still. And you can just see the gears turning in his head of like trying to figure out this guy and whether he's being authentic or whether he's making a move or whatever. And then he does actually ask him and speak. And he said he does it in the funniest way, too, where he's just like, did you just make a move on me? And then John Plato's like, maybe. And he's like, that is out of line, mister. Way out of line. line. (laughs) Did you just did you just play the clip? Way out of line. Oh my god! For a second, I thought that was an echo, and I was like, "That's not my voice." Sounds that's incredible. <laughs> way out of line. Um, <laughs> but no, like it's just so good the way that he sells it. He, it's like he's he's. I don't know. It almost feels like he is. He's acting the way that he thinks he should act, rather than the way that he actually feels. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just it's an incredible performance. He's he has such a great face for movies he's so good at smoking cigarettes on screen he's very he feels very much in the kind of vein of like robert mitchum and out of the past um where he just has so much presence that even though he's often not doing anything you just cannot take your eyes off of him <clears throat> i fully agree he, he, he's a very passive character for the most part because things are just kind of happening around him but he's always compelling and he's always fully engaged in what is going on around him. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of one of the main things about the man who wasn't there is, you know, oh, like, yes, like how much how much of um, not necessarily the movie uh, in terms of like why the movie was made and, and what we are seeing, but <clears throat> pretend that the movie is real. Mm. How much of the the actions of the people around him would have changed at all if he mm-hmm. wasn't there you know like yeah. he's he's just a it's killer. Like the he's just a to, to the point where he literally confesses to the murder yeah and the lawyer's right. like no that doesn't work <laughs> you know, that's yeah yeah no it's so good whenever he's uh yeah it's whenever uh what is, i can't tony remember francis character yeah tony shalhoub but francis mcdormand's character is oh, yeah. on trial yeah um God, I, I'm, I hate that I can't remember her name, but um, I'll, I'll look it up. Um, but yeah, it's so good because there's there's so many little moments throughout the movie that like just emphasize the fact that nobody really notices him. Like, mm-hmm. I love it when he goes to like talk to John Polito about the dry cleaning thing, and he wants to mm-hmm. invest, and he's like, "Oh, you're the barber? Yeah, sorry, I didn't recognize you without your smock <laughs> on." <laughs> and like. There's the one guy at the party that thinks that he works in women's wear or whatever, yeah. and and yeah, the the great that that scene with Tony Shalhoub is amazing because he like confesses to it, mm. and he just thinks that he's like, oh yeah, let's consider that as a defense, not like a thing you would actually do. Mm-hmm. And even like whenever he's talking to James Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's still like he's confessing to the affair. But mm. he's not admitting to him that the affair is with his wife. There's like a great line where he's like, yeah, uh, and then maybe her husband will find out. And then he laughs about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he he kind of chuckles to himself. Like, well, and he's, so... he's telling he's telling Billy Bob about the ransom note that he not ransom, yeah. but the uh, blackmail note that he received. The black, yeah. 
<clears throat> about having the affair and and yeah like it never crosses his mind yeah. no yeah he murders another man and is quite sure you know that you know it couldn't have been why would billy bob have written that note no of course it's the the, the nefarious dry cleaner who wrote it yeah you know yeah and, and so, right. again i love that so so much because of the way that the coen brothers once again are playing with that noir form of you know like a lot of the protagonists in in noir films have that sort of like oh you know i'm, I'm a speck in the wind you know like what what would this crazy world be like without me like they have that sort of they, they have that gruff existentialism where it's almost like that's part of what makes <laughs> me a badass is understanding that i'm just you know a, a tiny little speck in this world whereas right. in in this one it takes that and it's like, okay, well, let's make that the entire premise of would anything really actually have been any different if he hadn't been there? If anything, there would be two less dead people if uh, if he hadn't been there. And so, a- again, just the way that they're three taking less three less dead people, at least the the uh, the way that they are taking these things that you are used to the the things that as you're watching a noir film that make you not idolize the protagonist but uh view them in that sort of uh james dean rebel without a cause uh you know marlon brando like the yeah the, there's there's a, there's a romanticism to film noir to film our protagonist for yeah sure. and there is nothing romanticized about Ed Crane. There's nothing romanticized about uh, Billy Bob Thornton's uh, character because again, it, it's so mundane. Nothing <laughs> about it is, is glamorous. There's even a, I love it when the, <clears throat> the police officers come to tell him that they've arrested his wife uh, and he thinks that they're coming to get him, but like they literally offer him a cigarette while he's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> like, they're just like, everyone is just so constantly unaware of his presence even when he is standing right in front of them mm-hmm. and like oh yeah, he, goes to that, he goes to that family even reunion like a, too. his response isn't like even can't you see i'm already fucking smoking you know or anything it's just he just holds up the cigarette holds it out yeah <laughs> yeah well and if i remember correctly <laughs> I, I i noticed this at one point but i noticed it too late uh and i didn't go back and rewatch it to see how prevalent it was but there was at least one scene in the movie where everyone on screen was moving in one direction and Billy yes, Bob yes. was the only person going in the opposite direction. It's like that graduate thing. But but there was or, yeah. no like bumping into each other. There was right. no like going against the grain. There was no uh, like swimming upstream type of thing. It was just everyone's going in this direction except this person, but he's not even getting in their way. And, mm-hmm. and and again, there was one scene in particular where that's it a, it's really a scene where he's talking about out. being a ghost too. Yeah, and and that's why I didn't go back and rewatch it is because uh, like just in that scene and what he's saying, it made it really stand out. But I I didn't notice does it happen in in the rest of the movie? But but yeah, like he is essentially a, a ghost in in he is a living ghost. Like he still exists, but. In such a non-existent way, and again, I just love the way that the Coen Brothers are using that to to tell all those noir stories, or to take all of those noir themes and tell one of the most mundane stories ever. 
And again, I, I think that that's why a lot of people don't like the movie or why it doesn't get as much credit as it deserves is I think a lot of people just think that it's boring because like nothing happens. There's no, yeah. nothing happens. I mean, it's funny because the movie, the movie is rated R for, and I quote, a scene of violence. <laughs> like it's not a typical film noir where, you know, at some point there's going to be like a shootout or something like it's just there's a confrontation it ends very suddenly yep. when he stabs James Gandolfini in the throat which is an act that he like seems very hesitant to do for the most part and then when he does it it's just like it's reflexive right? it's yeah, reflexive. It's yeah yeah and then all of a sudden he's dead uh and and yeah I don't know like it's he's not again he's not a very active protagonist for the most part he does make some active choices you know he does decide to do the blackmail scheme which is fascinating because he's using his knowledge of the affair that he doesn't <clears throat> actually care about <laughs> to get money for this dry cleaning thing to like I don't know he, that, that's the other thing too is like you get the sense that he doesn't even understand why he's doing it like he wants to invest in this dry cleaning thing to get money but does he ever explicitly say like why he's do like what he, he wants money to do what yeah it's like he I wants money because he, he's seeing everybody around him has some kind of ambition to just make more money and so he's like oh i guess i can make more money doing this thing yeah yeah that, that was one of the um one of the other things uh that i was thinking when i was watching it is aside from the entire plot of uh the dry cleaning but just the way the, the way that he's playing against those noir tropes of he's just kind of there, you know, like, like you said, when he stabs James Gandolfini, it's just kind of a, a split second, you know, poke in the neck and, and then it's done. And it's not an aggressive act. It's not like he's really trying to fight. It's almost just kind of like, ah, I guess this. And that's what he's like for so much of the movie of he's just just there you know like uh, unlike so many noir protagonists he's not overly clever he is not the man who wasn't there he is there he's (laughs) he's there but he but it doesn't matter that he's there but but yeah like he's he's not like a lot of other noir protagonists where he's not gruff he's not witty he's not clever he's not driven he's not action oriented Mm -hmm. he's not a a hero he just the only thing he shares in common is he's faded Right. Like, I mean, that's, yeah. Like, he, mm-hmm. no but, matter what he does, he's heading toward the, like, inexorably heading toward this, this, uh, I mean, toward his death. Well, well I sure. guess I'll just say it. Towards everyone's death. But, which, it, but like, he's, he's kind also, of, hold, hold, hold on one second. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. He's also not even like an anti hero. You know, like, he, like you said, uh, blackmailing uh, James Gandolfini about the his wife's affair. It was just kind of like, I guess this is a way to get money. Like to me, it never seemed. There's like no malice to it at all. Yeah, yeah. right. Like, he's not mad at either of them. It, it doesn't seem like he's overly upset. He has that one line about like, well, you know, maybe there was a little bit of bitterness, but it doesn't seem like he's trying to destroy his marriage. It doesn't seem like he wants to. It's almost just kind of like, well, here's a way to get money, I guess. And and then like uh, like we were talking about earlier, when he confesses to the murder. That's not something that you would do if you, you know, really hated your wife and uh, were super that, yeah. upset that that she'd been having an affair. It was almost just kind of like, 
I, I guess I should yeah. probably confess. And That's- even like when when she dies, it's you know she she hangs herself in the prison cell, and he's the one who prov- provided her with the dress and the belt. In any other film, that could be viewed as like he was thinking ahead. That was really fucking sinister to give her a belt, right? And here, it's like no, he probably just thought she looked nice in the belt. So, yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting to see how like <clears throat> he doesn't seem to like you get the sense he does care about his wife, of course, because mm-hmm. like that's the only time he ever really the first time he actually seems to show any emotion on his face is whenever he is speaking to her in the jail and he he understands like how understands his part in it and that she is there because of him and that's when he starts like looking into <clears throat> oh we got to mortgage the uh the uh, barbershop or whatever to get the best lawyer to get Reed and Schneider to come in and defend her and like that kind of becomes his purpose is to <clears throat> save her in some way um, and then he loses that purpose and he tries to find it through some other way by like with Scarlett Johansson's character mm-hmm. trying to push, trying to like save her from the same fate that he has, but completely misreading mm-hmm. like what she actually wants out of life. Yeah. Um, She's really good at the piano, but doesn't really care. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The He, he finds comfort in it. Yeah. If but, anything, well, they're very similar characters. It's like, yeah, and, and she's not even like, oh. and like she's she's good, but it's not like she's even like that great. Like when he tries to get her those piano lessons, and uh, the guy's just kind of like, I, she's yeah, she she's has okay. no passion. She's fine. She's, she, I guess she's just like him, and he's seeing that cycle about to play out again, and he's like that. Mm-hmm. He he realizes he can't do anything to fix his own life in any way, so he's trying to fix it vicariously through her. Mm-hmm. Um, because she provi- gives him the only peace that he knows in yeah. life by just sitting there playing the piano. I love even like with that, like you get the sense that's whenever it starts to usually with the these noir protagonists, they're flawed. Yeah. They're, it's they're faded because they're flawed, and in his case, the movie like makes you think that he's got a thing for this yeah. you know teenage girl. But yeah. no, he just likes to listen to her play the piano. But, but, yeah, it's the yeah. one incident of not getting roadhead causing an accident. <laughs> <laughs> it's the anti-thinner. So, yeah. so a few uh, things with that, like his view of how great she was at the piano. Again, she wasn't bad, but she was yeah. fine. I think, but that he doesn't know. Like the, he, he doesn't know. know. For he, it. He, he didn't even know, know who Beethoven, Beethoven or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So, so he's yeah, like, like, "Oh, did him, you make that up?" <laughs> so for him, anything that is just a little bit different, a little bit classier, is so outside of what he's experienced that it comes across as as so much better than what it actually seems. And I think that yeah. that there's a few things that I want to talk about, but I think that that oh. actually informs part of the way that he was approaching the dry cleaning uh, piece of he's never really seen anyone with, you know, a, taking a chance on some sort of futuristic thing. And so I think that for him, much in the same way that, oh, here's someone who just plays the piano. She must be good because she's the only person that I've really heard yeah. play. Uh, when, um, what's his name? Polito comes in there. And he's talking about this new uh, this new investment opportunity. He's just kind of like, oh, I this must be the way of the future because I've not yeah. heard anyone talk about it. And and so I think it's almost like a lack of experience and just lack of 
lack of some of that noir worldliness where it's just kind of like, yeah, well, that, that must be what it is. And I love that they, they, they use like the, the car accident as the beginning of his undoing, but not for the way that you would expect. Yep. Typical noir, noir when he's like, you know, is, is birdie. Okay. Is birdie. Okay. And every other noir film, no birdie's dead. Right. Yeah, and that's, you, it's your and that's what he's going to go to jail for. And they're like, no, she's fine. But um, while you were unconscious, we found a body in another lake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, God, like, that shot, too, is so good. They, It's oh, like the yeah. shot from Night of the Hunter with him yeah. in the underwater. Which, that is an incidental, I don't believe, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, yeah, But I, I just love that, that, you know, the accident which would have been which would have what got him on death row in any other noir. There was no harm, no foul with that accident. Like, they don't suspect anything from that, really. It's just, no. Yeah. You know, while you were unconscious, we found this. Yeah. Well, and, oh, God. So, yeah, while you're having this dream about... Mm-hmm. So, and even in his dream, there's just, like, some dude trying to sell him shit, too. <laughs> <laughs> Michael McDonald. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, uh, tar your driveway. <laughs> Christopher McDonald, yeah, comes up and is trying to tar his driveway. And then Francis McDormand comes in and tells him to fuck off. <laughs> and I love it, too. It's like he's still trying to, like, he's now, like, trying to look to her to find, like, to, like, I don't know, do something about his life, I guess. I don't know. What do you, that, uh-huh. that dream sequence is interesting. I don't really. Uh, anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm still I'm still trying to like decide how I feel about a lot of this stuff like there's a lot of stuff in this movie that you know could be there because it means something or it could be there because you know Joel and Ethan Cohen are just like yeah this is entertaining or funny or whatever like so there's a few more specific things that I want to mention and then I I feel like we're really close to all right guys here's my theory and then we can uh, discuss it within the context of everything else we've talked about I do really quick before we move on from Scarlett Johansson's character I, I want to talk a little bit about do you what, what do you think Ed Crane's intentions were? Because at one point he says something of, uh, after leaving the concert when he's thinking about like, why, why couldn't it work? You know, why, why couldn't I be her manager and, you know, have someone to come home to? Why, why couldn't it work? To me, it sounds like there's almost that little bit of a relational like, why couldn't we be together in a relationship while also managing her? Why Why couldn't that work? Especially as he's walking up to her as she's talking to her boyfriend and and there's that sort of awkward silence of, all right, is, is he kind of you know, ever so slightly jealous that she's talking to someone? But then after the audition, when she tries to give him a blowjob and he's like, no, what are you doing? That doesn't seem like a, I don't want to get in trouble. That seems like a genuine, well, what are you doing, little girl? No, yeah. I'm just trying well, to help I, you. I mean, I, I think the scene with the boyfriend, it's what we're bringing to that situation. That's, yeah. We That's we expect him to be like, you know, who the fuck are you? But We expect it to be like an American beauty situation yeah, or something. Remember, he's been socially awkward with every <laughs> single person he has met in this film. So yep. why wouldn't he be socially awkward in this situation as well? So yep. that, they're they're bringing our expectations as to how we would react in that. I don't. Yeah, I don't I think, think there's. Color it. I don't think there's any romantic attraction yeah. whatsoever. I think I that he finds comfort in her presence because she plays music that he enjoys. Like that's just yeah. something that, like he even he that's what he says. He says it brings me peace. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's all it is. Like, I, I think it's twofold. He, he sees that she is headed down a path similar to him and he doesn't want her to be unfulfilled in yeah. life. And I think he also sees it as a way for him to find solace. Like if I'm managing her, I can be around her and I can, you know, do I this. this the, I have the just the one thing that brings me any kind of joy. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it is sexual or romantic in any no. way. I think that I, I genuinely think that he is asexual. Like I don't mm-hmm. think that he is attracted. Well, I mean, to they haven't. Him and his wife, wife haven't done the sex activity in years. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like his his. The fact that wife, he would even refer to it as having sex. As the, yeah, it's the, the sex. <laughs> it's the sex activity. It sounds so clinical, so scientific. <laughs> he he they, yeah. he has no passion for anything. Like yep. he. You know he's a barber because his, his, because that's just like his wife's brother happened to have a barber shop and he could get that through her. He's married because he was kind of like gone. He went on a blind date or whatever. Yeah, and, and his she's the one who pretty much made that happen. Yeah, she's God. the one who made that choice. Like I, oh god, the scene where he, I absolutely love. It's the most incredible thing whenever he's sitting by her after she got drunk at the family at the like <laughs> wedding thing, and he starts telling the story. Mm-hmm. about meeting her mm-hmm. and that's when he gets the call from big dave goes and kills him comes back and then finishes the story in his yep. in his monologue that's so amazing <laughs> where it's like this is just an interruption like he's not even upset about the fact that he just murdered a man he's just mm-hmm. completely ambivalent oh, hide the body you know just yeah yeah he's just like all right door. well that just happened i guess i'm gonna go home and uh yeah finish yeah. thinking about this thing i was thinking about yeah the, before the i was rudely call, interrupted the phone call interrupted mid-sentence and yeah. when he gets home he picks back up with the start of that sentence it's so incredible and it's it's a perfect example of just like how like straight and narrow he is how like he's just ah oh, it's so good um <laughs> But yeah, that, that so but in that story, he talks about I was about to mention. Uh, well, well, yeah, I was just gonna say in that story, he uh, he's just talking about how like his wife likes that he doesn't talk very mm-hmm. much, and the reason they get made, they was it? I guess she asked him to get married, and he's like, "Don't you want to get to know me better?" And she's like, "Why does it get better?" <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's just so good. <clears throat> um, it and it's why they're they're perfect for each other. God, it's so good. Extent. And uh, okay, so a few things. One, because this is a perfect lead-in from that. There's so many quotable lines in this movie, uh, or, or at the very least, if you can't remember all of them, because there's so many of them. So many there really are. That as you're watching it, it's like, oh, that's a great line. That's a great line. That's a great. Like it is just so impeccably written that every single line of dialogue, for me at least, had me just just so captivated. And that's a huge thing when so much of the movie is narration. Because some people can overdo it. Some people, uh, you know, in, in trying to write the narration and trying to, like, really trying to make it profound, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, you don't really know what you're doing, do you? But this one, you know, the, the man who wasn't there, the dialogue is so catchy and so clever that you will, for again, speaking for me, you will get drawn in within the first sentence when i started taking my notes uh, when i was watching it the other night i i I tried to write down oh that's a line that i want to remember that's a line that i want to use that's and i was like i can't i can't even like the entire opening monologue 
was like, I, I just I'm sure if there's much. a more quotable set of like film writers than the than the Coen brothers. Yeah, like, yeah. 100%. every film they write has endless quotes. Yeah, you know? I, <laughs> I still remember. Part of this is because I've seen it hundreds of times, but I still remember the very first time that I saw Racing Arizona with "Son, you got a panty on your head." Like. <laughs> 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 Such a throwaway oh, line has stuck with me uh, for decades. Uh, so, so yeah, every single line of this movie is just so so amazing. Uh, the the one where he's talking about, uh, I think he was talking about his brother in law. He was ta- I don't remember what he's talking about, but how uh, you know like it, it, that would be really interesting if you're 12 years old. And it's just the the way that he doesn't really look down on people but at the same time just does not understand why people are interested in the things that they're interested in. Um, the, the We've kind of talked around this, but I don't think we have directly talked about it. We've talked about how silent uh, Billy Bob Thornton is throughout this movie, but we've not talked about the flip side of that, of part of the reason that he can be so silent is everyone else in the movie does <laughs> not stop talking. It is yeah. just a constant barrage of other people saying whatever inane chatter they want to talk about without any sort of uh, awareness of whether or not people even want to listen to it. Um, yeah, yeah, the, which is very uh, astute in terms of just like uh, everyday real life activity. Anywhere you go, there's just so much constant chatter about nothing. Yep. <laughs> the fact that he hired a second chair because he was the one that talked the least. Oh God, I love that so much. Yeah, he, he said he's the one who did the least gabbing, and then once he hired him, he started talking incessantly or whatever. <laughs> like, I, I can, I so can good. very much relate to that. There, not so much anymore, but there used to be at least a couple of people that worked uh, on on the same floor that I do. That they would come by my office and just talk non-stop uh-huh. not like they would carry on a conversation where i was engaging with them they would talk i would be staring at my computer still typing uh-huh. away wait until it's silent for a good 10 seconds just yep and then <laughs> that was enough for them to keep talking and i was like oh my god what is going on at one point it like i was like okay trying to just ignore them isn't getting to them to go away i'm going to turn this into a game for myself and see how long i can get them to keep talking <laughs> and i think at one point uh someone stood in my doorway for an entire hour talking uh-huh. where i said very little other than yep you don't say huh well i'll be and it was uh yeah so i, I can relate to that exhaustion that uh little ed crane has with people talking around him uh, we, we talked about how amazing Frances McDormand is, but her portrayal when she is drunk at the family party. Oh my God. So beautiful. So hilarious. Very, very good. Yes, it is so good. Um, the, uh, everything about the Coen brothers style, like even the opening credits and the way that like they give it the almost cast a shadow. 3D, yeah. Where it's casting the shadow behind it. I love everything about this movie and um i I just i i i love everything about this movie so much and so 
Yes. I have a, I have a couple of questions. Yes. That I want to ask. I, I, I feel like you're leading. You're about to lead into your like finale thing. And I was, so I, don't I was want making. To... Well, I was getting through all of the. All right, here's the little things. Uh, uh-huh. And then, yeah, I at this point, I've just got like two or three bigger points within the context of everything we've been saying. So hopefully, it won't be another okay. two hours. So yes, what are some of your questions? I just, I just care because like I'm still sorting through my feelings on some of these things. I'm just curious how you guys feel. Um, how do you feel about the uh, the UFOs in this movie? Because uh, I don't, we I haven't talked about it too much, but like there are literal UFOs that pop up in this movie. It plays into my theory, so I'll answer that when I get to my theory. Uh, okay, okay. Well, we can talk about that later, then I guess. Um, okay. So there's a scene in this movie. We've talked around it a little bit with the whole sex act line. But there's a scene in this movie where the medical examiner comes to visit him after his wife has died and says, you know, they have to perform an autopsy. His wife is pregnant. And we know that she's been in jail at this point for months because of how long the trial has taken. So what is the significance of this? (laughs) I'm curious to know what you all think about this. I I mean I think that it's just that was Big Dave's kid and uh, that was well, he, all? she's in the first trimester though so she would have to be what what is that like twenty week twenty weeks or less I guess no yeah. no <laughs> sixty or like a full year dude <laughs> so do what yeah twenty weeks is half a year twenty is not a third of a pregnancy it's only about half so. It's like oh, the first, like, well, it's oh, like the yes, first twelve. Of course, yeah, you're right, right you're right. Okay, All right, guys, so if if the timing did not work for it to be Big Dave's, because I I hadn't thought about it because I was it just didn't seem it like as, it. Well, yeah. I was just assumed it was Big Dave's kid, and yeah. it just Me was too. yet another example of how Billy, uh, how Ed Crane didn't really matter, and just oh. life was happening around him. But, and I loved that the uh, the coroner's that whole let me go buy you a drink. I'm you know shit. I don't know if I can tell you this. Blah blah blah. Finally tells me and he's like, oh, well we hadn't had the sec- we hadn't we hadn't had yeah. the sec- in many years. And the guy's like, fuck, I'm 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 out. <laughs> yeah, he says he's he like quietly whispers to himself and says, I hope I did the right thing. And I love that, like, in this moment, this man is, like, really wrestling with the decision to tell him. And then, yeah, uh, Ed's just kind of like, well, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. It's like, just, just some other thing that's just on my plate of shit to just roll around in my brain, I guess. So, if the if the timing is as you say, where it's not possible for it to have been Big Dave's, then my theory that I'm coming up with on the spot right now is <laughs> that uh, it was Tony Shalhoub's. Oh, wow. Interesting. Fascinating. Huh. That, I mean, would not be surprising because his whole character, God, we haven't talked enough about Tony yeah. Shalhoub. He's unbelievable. I mean, in the movie. We don't really know how long the trial, how, how long all of this had gone on. Like, they, the passage of time is very yeah. So, in this film they do a bit of a montage but he has some lines in there about how like it takes a really long time for the trial to come together which you know but it, that could be go, days like, or weeks not necessarily I feel like he said months. that it was months i don't know maybe it's probably it's probably big days but like i don't know i, I think it's big days but 
I could see Tony Shalhoub feeling entitled to some of that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, or you Absolutely, know, yeah. since they couldn't, because he's the best. Much. He's the best lawyer in town, damn, and he really wanted to win, right? <laughs> and since they weren't paying him as as much as uh, the, the, as he expected, maybe mm-hmm. he considered that to be part of his payment, even though he was like, you know, going out to eat all the time and had to get the like nice suite at the hotel and and ate a food. ridiculous amount of food. Yeah, every yeah, time yeah. That scene. <laughs> like there is no reason for him to be ordering that much food other than to just have him order that much food. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah. it's totally a power play. Uh, so good. Eric, I have a question for you. Okay. I mentioned this, I think, I think I mentioned this during the punch out where uh, I, I remember the first time that I saw the man who wasn't there that when I got to the end, the ending hit me different than the movie to where I didn't exactly know how I felt about it in the year since thinking back on it. I was like, yeah, no, it's a great movie and I love it, but I can't remember exactly why I thought what I did. I just remember the feeling that I had when I got to the end and that sort of like, I don't, am I disappointed? And do, do I think that this was genius? I don't know how I feel. So since uh-huh. I can't remember how I felt the first time, and watching it this time recontextualize uh, the way that I think I want to know what was your reaction to the end of the movie and not necessarily like how did you feel about the ending scene but once you got to the end and credits were rolling and you were absorbing all that you had just taken in what were you left with like what what were you sitting there thinking I I love the ending of the movie, and uh, I'm glad you asked, asked this because this is actually what I was gonna what I wanted to get into next is I I found the ending to be extremely moving and like weirdly hopeful, uh-huh. like it feels like by dying, you know, the, the movie ends with Ed going to the electric chair because he. He he hired Reed and Schneider for his uh, trial, but then there was a mistrial because Frank came in and punched him um, in his grief over the loss of his sister. Um, and I, I love that he gets the lawyer that his that uh, his friend you know recommended to him earlier in the film, and then it was like, oh no no, never mind, don't get in. <laughs> yeah, and that ends up with anyway. It's like drawing the last name. Oh yes, yes, I can't. Yeah, he's Scarlett public. Yeah, uh, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins, yeah. yeah. Oh, and again, just another like small part that another actor just knocks out of the fucking part. Yeah, and uh, some more incredible drunk acting too. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, um, and yet another example of just how Ed Crane was fated to to, to what happened. You know, like right, yeah. despite no matter what happened. Yeah. Yeah, he was still on on that predetermined path. Yeah, I I I do think that the ending is like the movie is pretty bleak overall. Like a lot of people die, Ed never really finds what he's looking for. At least you don't think he finds what he's looking for. Um, but I feel like it's kind of the ultimate fulfillment of what he wanted to do, and he finds peace in his life before he dies like first of all i absolutely love 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 that 
by the end of it, the reveal is that the story, like the the monologues you've been listening to, the the voiceover, is revealed to be like he's been writing his life story down and selling it to pulp magazines because mm-hmm. uh, it gives it that kind of like double indemnity, you know, like where that movie's book ended with Fred McMurray dictating uh, the story or whatever. Like it's got that same kind of vibe to it, but. It it ties it into a lot of the <clears throat> the pulpier elements of this movie, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I guess. Um, well, I, I I do love too that with the ending that um, un, unlike a lot of noir films, only the guilty have been punished. Yeah, like yeah, you know, everyone everyone else in this film is gets to go on with their life, except for the two people who each committed a murder, and the embezzling wife who started pretty much the whole thing. And, and yeah. the uh um, you know the only, only the guilty people are really pun- oh I, I mean John Polito you know but I, we don't know I think that he's on the up yeah I think yeah. that he was a little bit of a uh not quite a con man but a uh, a grifter almost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but I do think that like you know he's trying to his the his whole thing is he's just trying to find peace or find some kind of satisfaction mm-hmm. and he goes to his death like hopeful about what's going to happen. Cause he says the line is like, I don't know what will happen when I go. Maybe the things I don't understand will be clear. Maybe Doris will be there. And maybe there I can tell her all those things we don't have words for here. Uh-huh. And like, I'm getting like, I feel very emotional thinking about it right <laughs> now because I just think that's so beautiful yeah. that like, he's this guy who's gone through his whole life, not ever really understanding people or understanding why he feels the way that he feels or understanding why, People don't see things the same way that he does. And he spent this whole movie trying to work out his feelings about what's going on. And, you know, maybe adding some embellishments here and there for entertainment purposes for these pulp magazines, which makes this story really <laughs> interesting as he's he's revealed to essentially be an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. um, which I love. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he finds some sort of peace and he he accepts the life that he's been given and hopes for something better on the other side. Um, and yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that. And I, I think it also ties in with one of the other main themes that I can't believe we haven't gotten into very much there where, you know, we've been spending a whole lot of time talking through all of these different things, trying to figure out what it all means. But the movie is constantly, especially through Tony Shalhoub's character, telling you that like, yeah, I don't know. Like, what the line is: "What the more you look, the less you know." Mm-hmm. Um, the more, or the yeah, the more you see, the less you really know. Um, and it feels like a lot of times when we're trying to find meaning in something, we're you know we miss the forest for the trees, yeah, kind of thing. A lot of times, you just kind of have to take what you get. And I'm trying to think of the best way. Like, I don't even really know how to describe it. I don't know if I have the words for it. But there's something that feels very profound to me about that. Um, where and it's it's something the Coen brothers do so well, where it's like it it feels like they're very instinctive writers and they're just writing exactly what they feel, even if they don't know exactly how they feel or why they feel the way that they do, it just feels right. Um and there are all these like contradictions in the way the characters act. Like I love <laughs> There's also another line that Tony Shalhoub's character has where he said, where, um, or no, it's actually, God, it's a line that Ed says where he's talking about the final speech. 
that Tony Shalhoub gives, and he's talking to the jurors. He says he told them to look not at the facts, but at the meaning of the facts. And then he said the facts had no meaning. It was a pretty good speech. <laughs> like, it's just constantly trying to act like everything has meaning and then flipping around and being like, no, it doesn't really mean anything or what it means is what you bring to it. Um, so like stop trying to find something else outside of whatever it is that you feel in the moment. <laughs> um, I guess, I don't know if I, if that's make, makes any no, that, sense. Somebody that makes, that makes a, a lot of sense. And okay. it also relates into what I think is one of the, the biggest themes of this movie, especially within the context of our monochrome for the holidays and some of those themes connecting the movies uh, that we've been talking about. So uh, when, when we talked about Tetsuo, you know, we talked about a lot of things, but one of the main things that we talked about was uh, it was sort of like a, almost like a class warfare in finding your role and not just being another cog in the machine. And so it felt very much like um, uh, human against society or at least human against uh you know class structure type stuff and then in raging bull we talked a whole lot about toxic masculinity and so it was that sort of uh you know man against the uh, the inner devil or you know uh, man against the things that will destroy you and so then with the man who wasn't there i feel like it's a lot more of just man against or you know human against existence you know there, there's so much uh it's so much of what billy bob says throughout the movie and just the way that he interacts with people and again we've been uh mentioning a lot of this but there's just so much social and emotional and relational exhaustion in the way that he interacts with other people and and there's a couple of things uh that he says that i i think really uh, really play into that. He has the one line about here is part of us. It keeps growing and then we cut it off and throw it away where, you know, like our existence, it just keeps going and going. But then when someone dies, they're just kind of forgotten about. And like the existence of everything keeps going regardless of an individual, you know, there's another hair being trimmed off of the, you know, the, the head of uh, the universe. Uh, and then also, um, uh, and I keep going back between uh, calling uh, Billy Bob by the actor's name and the character's <laughs> name. Hey, then, then he has the other line of I'm guilty of being an ordinary man living in a world that had no place for me. And so mm-hmm. like so much of this movie is just just raw existentialism of does it matter? What matters? Does anything matter? What is the point of our existence? And and I, just, I love the way that these three movies uh, very unintentionally when we started <laughs> the popcorn punch out, but the way that our skull of decisions knows better than we do sometimes the way that these three films, it's like have the been saucer able- flying above our heads as we're on our way to <laughs> exactly. on death row, <laughs> shining the light on the things we need to discuss. I, I love the way that these three films wildly different films have some of these thematic elements that do tie them together to where you could play this trilogy in an intro philosophy, intro to philosophy class and break a few freshmen's brains because there's some dense stuff within all of the things that uh, the three of us have been pulling out of these movies because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing relating to that, and uh, I, I assumed this, but Eric, you mentioned this when we were talking earlier today uh, that confirmed it. 
but the 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 name of the movie came in part from the um the uh antagonish uh the poem from american educator and poet william hughes mirns and we talked about this in our fortress episode but i've got that pulled up um yesterday upon the yesterday upon the stair i met a man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today oh how i wish he'd go away when i come when i came home last night at three the man was waiting there for me but when i looked around the hall i couldn't see him there at all go away go away don't you come back anymore go away go away and please don't slam the door last night i saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today oh how i wish he'd go away and I feel like that is also playing into some of these themes of just existence and, you know, the, the more you look, the the less that it's there. And, you know, m- maybe Billy Bob's character in this movie is the man upon the stairs who wasn't there. And again, he's just kind of existing, but not existing, but having an impact on those around him, even though he's not relating to those around him. Uh, I, I, I haven't fully grokked what I think about, um, how that poem ties into the movie, but I do think that it is fascinating. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I feel like I need to watch this movie like at least two more times to really like sort out all of my feelings on it. Um, well, <clears throat> here's the last thing that I have to say. But, well, that I, sorry, yeah. I, I, I want to make sure that we've addressed all of the other uh, things that the two of you want to talk about. Any other main themes that you want to talk about before my my senior thesis on this movie um dan you got nope. anything nope <laughs> no i just um i don't know i just i love that the movie uh feels like it's it, it, the Coen brothers are so playful with their direction and i love how yeah everything feels like it has meaning but then they also I can't decide if they're trolling the audience by like being like, ah, it doesn't really matter. Oh, I uh, feel like they were 100% troll. There, <laughs> there is no reason to throw an alien into this film at all, other than to totally <laughs> fuck with us. Yeah, There's I mean, no I definitely reason think to they, start Fargo with this is based on a true story. Right. I definitely mm-hmm. think there is an element of that. And they like to, they, they it's a very Beatles esque thing where they like to throw shit in just to see what kind of stuff people will come up with like i've read interviews with them where they like make fun of critics to try to like find some sort of secret meaning within their movies or whatever and i definitely think they do that to an extent but i and then so yeah i think there's a trollishness to it where it's like haha you think that this is about this but really like none of this means shit just whatever like Mm -hmm. like have fun with it but i also feel like it kind of gives the audience an out for where it's like yeah i don't really understand this but it I like the way it makes me feel and it's okay that I don't really know exactly how to articulate it. Like the, the act, the, the character in this movie who speaks the most is, uh, Tony Shalhoub doing all of his stuff about the uncertainty principle and, you know, reasonable doubt, science, the atom, you know, like (laughs) he's, he's, he's a defense attorney and he has that bit where he's, Talking about, yeah, the more you look, the less you know. The beauty of it is we don't got to know. We just got to show that, God damn it, they don't know. <laughs> and it's just so funny that he is the most capable man in the room. He's the one that everybody's looking to. And he doesn't really know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> what? He, he just does... makes everybody else in the room feel like they don't know what the fuck they, are, they think. But he does he, have He that even talks speech. about the uncertainty principle. And he, like, fully doesn't actually understand what the uncertainty <laughs> principle is. <laughs> or who even came up with it. 
he's just kind of like basically I am the Tony Shalhoub of this episode mm. where he's just rattling shit off the top of his brain and trying to make <laughs> sense of it. And well, he, yeah, he well, he's, the, he's the perfect defense attorney. He talks a great game, makes you question what it is you're actually hearing and yeah. seeing, and by the end, you're so fucking confused that you can't come to a definitive beyond a reasonable doubt on anything. Exactly, yeah. Because he has just talked you into it. Yeah. Well, it's and you know, so brilliant. We don't have time to get into the whole legal system of allegedly <laughs> innocent until proven guilty, and uh, the the onus being on the prosecutors of I don't have to prove that I'm innocent. You mm. have to prove that I'm guilty. Yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt so a defense attorney does not have to prove that you did not do it they just have to that's cast why, enough doubt that's why people rarely take the defense let's take the stand in their own defense because mm-hmm. they don't have to yeah yeah and my, my, uh, they don't <laughs> yeah well, my wife's uncle defense attorney and it is so frustrating to try and argue anything with him uh, I mean, it's it's a fun like uh, verbal sparring, uh, but at the same time, it's like he is so good at finding like the one little chink in the armor and just hammering it over and over again. Like, mm-hmm. doesn't matter what else you say, it's like, nope, there's this one little thing, got to resolve mm-hmm. that before we can move on to anything else. And it's just, is that how you prepare yeah. for these episodes? You go and talk to him, <laughs> just to, uh, no, <laughs> to, to get your defenses up. Uh, well, and. He, also, he needs to be, we, we need to do intolerable cruelty and he needs to be here for it. <laughs> <laughs> Poking I'll, I'll holes in he, all he, of he the things. Talk. He can talk. Uh, when, when Tony Shalhoub is giving his uh, quasi soliloquy about uh, the uncertainty principle, it is so beautifully shot where he's in the spotlight. Oh, and God, everything it's else is in almost complete darkness. This really is such a beautiful movie. Um, looks so good. All right, so, uh, so, so with all of that, I have a question before I get into my theory, and I asked okay. both of you this before we recorded to hopefully oh, yes. give you some time to actually think about it and not have it on the spot, just like whatever. That's a dumb question. What would this movie have been without the narration? And before you answer. I'm not asking about the entertainment value of what was created and how the narration is, you know, integral to what we as audience get in our entertainment. I'm asking the story. Pretend that this is real. If you were not an audience, if you were a person in the world of this movie, interacting with all of the events of this movie, and you did not have Billy Bob's narration to inform you of anything. What is this story without his narration? It's so much more sinister because so? I wouldn't believe in the coincidence of all this shit. I would, I would think he is just a crafty fucking mastermind who somehow pushed his wife into the arms of another man so that he could blackmail them to get the money so that he could seduce his, his friend's daughter, you know, I would have thought that was his plan all along. That I'm going to get rich. I'm going to get money so I can, you know, lure this little, this 18 year old girl away from her dad. And this is how I'm going to do it by pushing my wife away to fuck another man who I can then blackmail to get money. It would have been such a sinister film without that, is that narration. Fascinating because that's not where I went at all. Oh, 
Yeah, oh, no, m- like, m- oh, maybe that shows more of who I am well, than what the movie is. <laughs> oh, no. I'm, no, I, I, have, like, to, I, I have to point. The, I have to point the events at myself and interpret how what would I have been doing in that. Well, like so, as you're talking about, it's like no, that makes complete sense. I absolutely can see how sinister that is. But yeah, that's. I I want to see that movie. I feel like I already <laughs> exists, but I also want I to see basically. I'm oh, sorry, I can't. Go, go ahead, Eric. What What do you think the story is without the narration? Uh, I basically came to the same conclusion. I think that it's basic like he if you don't have the narration and you don't get the internal perspective, Ed Crane just looks like a sociopath. Like this is yeah. this movie becomes wow. psycho. <laughs> like I mean it it really feels it feels he, like he's he remains so emotionless in every single that, thing. That's Never thing. loses cool even when everything is going to shit. Is he, you're like, oh, this guy's got a plan. This guy's got a plan for fucking everything. Look at how cool he is. Look how calm and collected he is. Wow. It's like you said earlier, like when you were talking about how like we understand through this, you know, we hear his inner thoughts. We see, uh, like we see that he has good intentions, but, you know, the scene where he sends her the belt with the dress and all this stuff, mm-hmm. like that suddenly feels like it is part of a bigger scheme, a bigger plot. Mm-hmm. When he's talking about throwing the hair in the dirt and all this stuff, like you would you hear him mutter something about it, oh. but then he gives greater context to it oh, yeah. through it, his his I, narration. I'm glad you brought, brought that up because Andrea has not seen this movie. That is the one scene she walked into the room during where he's like, <laughs> I'm gonna take the hair out and just throw it in the dirt and she's like what the fuck are you watching (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) yeah I'm like I can't even explain it based on the one scene you just watched right yeah I am sorry because I'm not even sure I know what he's fucking talking about here So he probably comes across as like like Buffalo Bill or something (laughs) wow so I'm on the complete opposite end where I think that without this narration, without Ed Crane giving you any sort of context, he's just kind of a schlub. You know, he's just Mm -hmm. there. In fact, I would, I would even go so far as to say they would have to change the title. No, the man who was just there. No, (laughs) I would go so far as to say that Ed Crane's character might be on the autism spectrum especially Mm, with so many of the things eric that you have been saying in this episode about his complete inability to like interact with others or read social cues or like how he's always been awkward how there is that Mm. emotionless piece i don't read any of that as uh sociopathic because again i don't think that anything that he did was malicious he wasn't mad at his wife he wasn't trying to you know manipulate things he wasn't trying to uh, get with uh scarlett johansson he was just there he, he could cut here because he could do it he hated people talking too much because it's just you know um uh sensory overload when someone came by with a hey here's this new opportunity just oh <coughs> okay i guess that's what i should do then and just i i don't know like i i don't think that um if if this character is on the autism spectrum i don't think that you know it's like the 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 more severe side of it 
But I do think that there is that certain level of just complete inability to interact with others and complete inability to read social cues. Like you said, when he walks up to, uh, to Scarjo after the piano recital and he's just kind of like, yep. He's not reading. He can't read the room. Man is incapable of reading the room. Exactly. And I don't think that it's vanity. I don't think that it's sociopathic or it's psychopathic, you know, in terms of like, I am the center of attention. I think that it's just, I exist. I'm I'm guilty of being an ordinary man. That interpretation reflects on us I, on me i think more than it does the movie <laughs> well i think the, the narration and i think it's like he's the most evil son of a bitch there is <laughs> i think it's just because of the context of it like if we don't understand why these things are happening the way that they are then that's the way that i would have to read it because bad things keep happening and he's at the center of it all yeah sure but yeah i mean but i can see even, i definitely see what you even you mean things, to Nathan. even things like when uh and, and again recontextualizing all that we've been talking about when he's telling the story of how he met his wife, he gets a phone call and then how long is that scene where he goes and, uh, and murders Tony Soprano. And then when he comes back and picks up in like the exact same sense oh. that he left with, but see without the voiceover narration, we never know the end of that. We never know the end of that story. <laughs> As I was saying, we wouldn't actually know what he's thinking about. He would just, it would just look like he's like sitting there staring at his wife, like a fucking lunatic. But, but the point is his narration with all that happened, there was no break in, in what he was thinking. And, mm. and again, regardless of whether or not he's on the autistic spectrum or not, I do think that the ending of writing the stories for these men's magazines, I think that all of the narration was because you see a lot of men's magazines in front of him. Like it's not just one or two. There is, you know, easily 15 or 20 on on the table in front of him. Yeah. I think he had been reading them because he was in prison and that's all that he could do. And he's just like, I could write this. And so, like, he is taking a very mundane, just like, you know, oh, whoops, here's a couple of things that happened that didn't turn out so great. And then adding in all of that noir, this is what you expect to read in these kinds of novels, these kinds of magazines, which is why I think that when he saw the alien, I don't think that he saw an alien. I think that that was him thinking, should I put an alien in this story? (laughs) <laughs> there's some aliens inside well, of these magazines the, it, it would be good for the men's magazines of that time period it, it would mm. work but I don't I don't know if it fits with my story like I think that that is him thinking through do I want to include this in my story mm. and Eric I know you hate the it's all in their heads I think that this is a what we as audience saw is his narrative exaggeration for the men's magazine mm-hmm. and, and therefore well, not actual, which for uh, publication would also, he would make himself out to be much more innocent than he really truly was. Uh, he's done. <laughs> yeah. It's part of his master plan. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, first of all, I like your read Nathan, because there was a point at some point when we were recording this podcast it occurred to me how perfect billy bob thornton is for this character when thinking about the fact that he also played like carl childers as like his (laughs) debut role like this this role is really not that far removed from that yep 
other than just the affected voice and and that kind of thing it's really a similar and and the severity of things of course the severity yeah absolutely but like it's it's a very similar kind of thing where he just has to have a lot of presence um and also no presence at all um but no i i agree to a certain extent about the ufo stuff because at no point is there any kind of hint about there being a an alien presence in the film until after he hears the story about like here's the story from um oh god uh and I, I think is her name the uh t- uh big dave's wife yeah yeah and nerdlinger um and Brewster. he only and he only sees it when he's in prison and mm. that like well, could have been a spotlight from you know like someone breaking that's out. not a hundred percent true because y- well there is the bit where the the first time that the the saucers are seen in the movie is when he has the car accident because the hubcap rolls and it looks like a saucer and there's a transition into his dream sequence that he transitions into and out of his dream sequence with saucers because the mm. hubcap of the car is a saucer that then goes into him waking up in his home where the dude shows up tries to sell him tries to tar his driveway and then when he wakes up from that, he sees a saucer because of the reflector on the doctor. Um, Which is a very similar device to what they use during the dream sequence in Lebowski. That's, yeah, that, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, the Coens have a lot of uh, dreams. And there's dream sequences in, uh, like, Raising Arizona. And mm-hmm. dreams are a big motif in No Country for Old Men and all this stuff. Yeah, it's... Some of the serious man. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah, serious man. Um, but I, I do feel like the, whether the aliens are there or not, I do think that it's supposed to represent like the fact that he believes that there is something bigger out there, out there than what he is experiencing. And that's part of like him finding this kind of like peace and hope is like, or it's a visual motif of he feels alien and he's alienated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He. He, I mean, there, there was a point in the movie where I thought that it was going to like just say that he is actually an alien, or that like <laughs> uh, Mrs. like Nerdlinger is is an alien or something. Like I, at some point, I was like, is some person that he's interacted with actually an alien, or like maybe uh, an alien came and impregnated his wife? That's <laughs> she was pregnant or something. I don't know. There's a part of I me mean, that thought that there, there was going to go a bit. Tony Shalhoub has played an alien before. that's a very good point very well um but no i i think that the alien stuff works really well because uh, you know it that is his him realizing or like at least believing that there's more to life beyond what he has experienced and you know it gives him some kind of hope but i also feel like i love the way that it just connects to like film noir like um you know, this movie's set in 1949, so it's, like, on the cusp of the 50s, and it feels like the world is moving on beyond him. It's moving on from, like, noir was very popular in the 40s, and then in the 50s, it gave way to more of, like, the sci-fi movies. So I feel like it kind of represents that, where, like, it's moving on past him, and he doesn't really have to worry about keeping up with it in any way anymore. Um and, and yeah, just the whole tie-in with fate and um, the fact that you're, like you said earlier, Nathan, like in a film noir, the 
the whole existential crisis of being like a tiny grain of sand and a sea of nothingness <laughs> is just it makes him sm- feel even smaller yeah in the film if there is this idea of like there's some other force beyond our understanding that is either watching us or controlling us in some way yeah well all of this is why i wanted to save that question for the end is because i didn't want the entire episode to be refuting like no that's why it can't work because like i said at the top of the episode it doesn't matter like this is the kind of movie that regardless of what the actual read on it is it still works and all of the other analysis that we did up to this like everything that i said was a very genuine this was the analysis that i was having as i was watching the movie and this is why all of the things you know affected me the way that they did and why i think that it's such a an amazing uh film noir but also a and you know not quite a satire but a little bit of a parody of noir and how it has that coen brother style of mixing serious and comedy like all of that stuff works because it works and then you get to that ending uh realization and that throws things into question and it's like okay how much of that was true how much of that wasn't how much of that could be him overemphasizing things how much of that could be him downplaying things because he is a sociopath the uh and i also love the fact that all of the things that you've been saying throughout this episode have been bolstering all of that like talking about tony shalhoub's bit about uh the uncertainty and the more you look the less that you see where it's like okay now that you start having a few more of these facts actually revealed to you what does that tell you about the story nothing this tells you nothing the 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 realization that the narration was him writing for a men's magazine tells you nothing about how much of what he said was true or not but what it does is it casts that tiny bit of doubt and i i love the way that the coen brothers have done that in so many of their movies where they they take the themes of the movie and then actually use them kind of against the audience so it's like oh here's this theme about existence and you know what matters and what doesn't and here's this element about uncertainty and this could be the thing that saves your wife just casting that tiny bit of doubt and now that we've planted that seed of how important doubt can be we're going to give you a seed of doubt of whether or not what you've just watched mattered or even happened the way that he said or even happened at all he could have just been driving with scarlett johansson maybe she did die like maybe that's the only true thing and he just built everything else around it to make it seem more glamorous we have no idea and the fact that we don't know i feel like is such a huge piece of this movie and i think that that's why i can't remember how what i exactly i thought but how i felt at the end the first time that i watched it because I almost felt like the rug was pulled out from under me of here's this movie that I'm watching and it's good and it's great and I'm feeling bad for him because, you know, you, you, you sympathize for Ed Crane. You didn't want him to die. And so you're sympathizing for him and then it's like, okay, all of this might have been a lie. And it's like, what? I, I, okay, so how am I supposed to feel right now? And, and again, I, I love the way that they use that because it doesn't matter. And, and I think that that's so beautiful and so brilliant. And also, 
Eric, why I totally disagree with the, oh, I hate the, it was all in your head movies. I, I understand you hate when it is very explicitly, when it's explicit, none of this happened. We are stating it's that not really used as like fact. a twist in this movie or anything. Right. It's just kind of like, like you can accept everything that is put before you as absolute fact, but the movie keeps it pretty open to interpretation and it's more about what you bring to it rather than what uh, the movie's not telling you how to feel. Right. It's giving you the leeway to feel what you feel and, and like tell you that it is valid. Right. Like, like again, I find this movie very hopeful and uplifting by the end of it. And, but I feel like there are probably more people out there that find this to be an incredibly bleak, horrible movie <laughs> where it's just, you know, uh, nothing matters. And then you die. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, it, it, if I were to do a double feature, a, a non Cohen double feature, the first movie that comes to mind is uh, I would put this with Brazil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, they end with people in chairs. They also, mm. in, or they they also have a main theme of just here's a guy, and all of existence is being challenged for him and you're given enough clues to assume that what was real and what wasn't but you also don't know for certain yep yep i also love that he goes from the barber chair to the uh, electric chair mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, chair it's a, important to this movie i was gonna say yeah a man defined by chairs sitting yep. in a chair whenever he makes the biggest decision of his life to uh, give John Polito some money. Oh, man. What a great... I fucking love this movie so much. It's so good. I'm glad that we all are, agree because it it seems to be somewhat divisive, I guess. Looking at... Um, God, looking at some of the lowest reviews on Letterboxd, most of them are just... It's boring. Uh, yeah. One of them says, Billy Bob Thornton has only one face. Well, that's not true. Um, yeah, there, there's just a lot of very annoying and boring. The piano track across the whole movie was grating and way too much voiceover. That's the whole goddamn point. <laughs> <laughs> the, also, the piano was not grating. I love the music in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it doesn't even matter that much to read all of the, the lower reviews. Because I mean, almost all of them are just like, it's boring and but you know what to be fair like i don't blame people for finding this movie boring because it's like kind of supposed to be boring like that's a i mean i don't find the movie itself boring at all but it is about a very boring Mm -hmm. person living a very boring life and like the whole um, yeah if you came if you came to this from like how many old brother were at that where there was like constant motion and comedy and singing. Yeah. You know, that a lot happens in that film. Just yeah. a lot. And you went from that to this as the next Coen Brothers film you saw, I could understand where people went like, no, this is not for me. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, really going from going from no country, working backwards or so. I mean, I don't know, like it it's even though it covers a lot of the same themes of their work, it's it's very different in tone and style. And again, deliberately pretty ponderous. Like the whole plot of the movie, you expect the 
him murdering James Gandolfini to be more like the end of the second act or something. You know, that happens 40 minutes into the movie. That, and yeah, that, when it, oh, go ahead, sorry, I was just gonna say when it happens, like at that point I was like, Oh shit, I don't know what this movie is anymore. Cause there's still like an hour and 20 minutes left and I don't know where it's going. Yep. Going backwards from no country. I want to see Ed and Anton just sitting in a room. <laughs> Staring at each other. <laughs> <laughs> two, those two guys sitting in chairs. Like, what do you say, friendo? Like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> what's friendo? <laughs> like, I, I can picture Ed being the one person who could have, who could like one up Anton because Anton would not be able to read him back. <laughs> <laughs> just, just two sociopaths sitting in a room across from yeah. one another. <laughs> Now, well, what would happen is Anton uh, would show him his little uh, pneumatic canister, and Ed would say, "Way out of line." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like, I, I understand. He would, why be, people, he would be like heads or tails, and then he would just not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, "Well, here grows on the head, so heads, I guess." Uh, <laughs> so, like, I, I get why people think that it's boring. Again, I really, really yeah. do. But also, I think that they are, obviously, since we've spent the last two hours talking about this, so drastically missing the point that this is supposed to be about just the mundanity of existence and how even even in noir films where they're supposed to be like all dark and gritty, like if you really look at some noir films and, you know, take, take away a couple of the chases and, uh, and gun scenes and you know some of the sex scenes they're real like what happens in those it's about a dude looking for something like Mm -hmm. there is not that much different between a film noir and your grandpa losing his glasses like Uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah very good point so that's the appeal of them to a certain extent is like a film noir is you're supposed to be kind of just swept up in it and not really understand exactly what's going on. Yeah. It's the fact that this one, all of those tropes are as boring as can be. You know, he's not a newspaper reporter going out and trying to find these stories. He cuts hair. Yeah. He's not a PI or anything like that. He's no Sam Spade or, Mm. um, any of those kind of guys. He's just, yeah, he's just a dude. Well, it's funny too, because usually I like, I classify something as a good film noir as if at like one point in the film, I'm just yelling at the screen, just fucking go home and everything will be okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's always that moment where there's, but with like, with Ed there, there isn't that moment. Well, it's like half the time he is going home. (laughs) Go home before you actually go to big Dave. So when big Dave calls you, don't leave to, to, to quote how I met your mother. Nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also so funny too, that like he doesn't really seem to sense any danger in that moment. Like Big yeah. Dave calls him and he's like, Hey, I really need to talk to you late at night. Let yourself in. I'm alone at the store. And he's just like, yeah. okay, yeah. I'll be there. <laughs> right there. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Love it. So good. I, I adore this movie. So super quick, you know what other film noir movie I adore? Um, I don't know. Dead men don't wear plaid. Oh mm. god. I, Sorry, Nathan. Nathan's been like talking about how sad he is that we did not talk about <laughs> dead men don't wear plaid. 
So now he's going to hijack the podcast and we're going to talk about Dead Man Door. But no, <laughs> I, 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 so hours of the evening when he knows we are at our weakest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just throwing that in. Uh, I rewatched Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid amidst all of the other Coen Brothers films. I'm starting to see it. And there, there are a few problematic elements because of when it was made. Um, some very problematic elements. God, some very problematic elements. But overall, there's a, yeah, I'll, I'll fill, in, fill in on some details uh, after the episode. But overall, it's it's still just so funny. And it is still so incredibly well done with the way that it mixes in the uh, uh, clips from older movies. <clears throat> in a way that it's okay it's not as seamless as i remember it being but it still uh-huh. works really well and there were several scenes that i was laughing out wa- laughing out loud watching it again and it's just i really wish that we had talked about it that's all we'll cover it again at some point we'll have to do uh parodies or steve martin or, or something oh i'll definitely i definitely want to get parodies in there at some point uh-huh. um i'd love to do that ah uh, all right. Anything else that y'all want to talk about with uh, the man who wasn't there? No. Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm sure there's other stuff I could do, but mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm tapped out. Uh, yep. But man, great movie. Glad we got to talk about it. Feel like we did okay. You know. Yeah. I, I'm. I. I'll go ahead and apologize for how often I just like fucking rambled and monologued my way through this. I feel like I talked way too much, but. Uh, <laughs> This film's all about rambling and monologuing. Yeah. And really. I, and I said at the top of the episode, I wanted this movie through your eyes of having seen it for the first time. Yeah, I really needed to work out how I felt about a lot of this stuff. And I th- I feel I feel better about it now. Good. So, like uh, I got, yeah. got it all off my chest. Yeah, this was one I remember at, at the video store when it came out. Like, we only got like two copies of it. It was just like one I could not get people to rent. You know, no matter how much I talked it up, it just people took one look at it and they're like, uh, eh. <laughs> it's like a, a, only a single scene of violence. Come on now. Well, it's just that, you know, too, with like in, in the late 90s, early 2000s at video stores, the average consumer at the video store judged how good a movie was by what, how many copies of it were on the shelf. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And stuff that had how popular it is. Yeah, stuff with like one or two copies was just not worth their time. You know, I'm only going to watch the stuff that you've got 50 to 100 copies of. Because that's so funny. If you that many, that must be good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I was the exact opposite. Whenever I walked into Blockbuster and, you know, like all the outer wall, the, the mm-hmm. not outer, like outside, but the walls were where like all the new releases, because those were the ones that were prominently seen. Whenever mm-hmm. I went to Blockbuster, it was like, all right, what's in the middle of the store? Like the yeah, bottom was shelf mine. things that people aren't yeah, really was, looking at. Was, the video store I was at, that was our bread and butter. We had, because we had like the $5, five movies for five bucks for five nights yeah. on all the catalog titles that were more than a year old. That's what it took to get it in the catalog was more than a year old. And that's where we made a vast majority of our, our money because the movie renters in I mean, in the area, knew that we were the ones that curated that shit. Yeah. Like, we, whenever, because we had, like, God, it, sounds, it feels like a popper some now, but, like, we had, like, every month we'd have $150 to buy movies 
on our own for the for you know the catalog. Oh, that's cool. And, but you know, in those days, like a new film was like a hundred dollars still. So we would only we. This is when we'd buy like the ones that Warner had just put out. Oh, this is their one seventy fifth anniversary. Mm-hmm. So we go buy that copy of Cold Hand Cool Hand Loop that we didn't have. You know, and we that's that's how we we use we always use that money to fill in the catalog. Um, so like our store did very well because people knew we knew our hit and it was actually curated. Yeah, we we had a curated like library of stuff. So it's like, yeah, sure, we've got we might have a hundred copies of Practical Magic on the wall, but that was not our doing. (laughs) (laughs) That was the corporate overlords that did that. But if you wanna, you know go look in the Western section, you're gonna find every good fucking Western there ever was. Because we make sure we have those. Yeah. I would love it if uh if we could have like an actual video monsters curated video store rental <sighs> that'd be great yeah i was yeah. definitely we always do that could make an episode a special episode like we pick the 50 movies that would be in the sci-fi section in our horror section in our drama section yeah the video corner yeah i like, I like that it. I like that idea a lot. What, what, what um, about that off the episode? Because this is already starting to get late. But yeah, I, I like that a lot. Um, so I, I already mentioned some of my thoughts, but last question before we close things out. What do you all think of the way that our three movies worked out with Tetsuo, Raging Bull, and The Man Who Wasn't There? I'm pleased. I always I always get pissed during the, during the, tri- <laughs> during the uh, punch outs, but I'm always happy at the end. Like, yeah, these are good ones to talk about. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean we we I mean that's the great thing about it is we generally pick movies that we all want to see. Uh so even if the ones we were really rooting for lost, we still get good stuff out of it. And yeah, mm-hmm. there, there is always whether it's just us pulling shit out because that's the way that our minds function. Like I can't watch movies back to back without drawing some kind of parallel between mm-hmm. them generally. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I never would have watched Tetsuo if it wasn't for this. Like, I just it would have never really been something I was that interested in seeing. Um, I doubt I would have rewatched Raging Bull for a long time since it's one I'd already seen. I don't generally don't rewatch movies a ton unless I'm, you know, doing a Scorsese rewatch or something. Right. Yeah. And then I'm glad that I finally had a reason to go back and and watch this one because again it's I think I've largely missed it because it's not been streaming very mm-hmm. much man so few um, of the Coen Brothers movies are right yeah it, it's one of and again it's one of those where it's like kind of existed in the middle of the spectrum with them where it's like yeah some people love it some people don't really like it I don't know if it's one that I like really need to mm-hmm. you know I, I it's not that I didn't want to watch it it's just that it's kind of falling I, through the cracks over I, the years. I had a feeling that you were going to love this one yeah, I, I mean, I have such a soft spot for noir as it is. And uh, I'm really coming around on Billy Bob Thornton. I've been watching, like, I watched, um, I especially love Billy Bob Thornton in noir mode, which is kind of weird because he's been in a few different types of noir films, but he never plays the same kind of character. Like, he's in um, A Simple Plan, the Sam Raimi film, which is like a neo-noir, and he is... Yeah fucking incredible in that movie like he is so good in a very you need to watch movie. him in uh one false move that's that's well. the other one i watched one false move a few months ago and god damn it that movie is incredible and another one where he's he's much more of like a like a really 
like a real piece of shit character. Yeah, the ice harvest, of course. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's another one. Like he that is it's so his wheelhouse, and it's fascinating because like again, he never plays the same kind of character across these movies, but that's exactly and then he's also in the Fargo TV show. As I was say, the first season of Fargo, he's tremendous in. Yeah. Um, he's, I've I've really I used to not really like Billy Bob Thornton that much because I just kind of like he was really fucking weird when he was like dating Angelina Jolie he was everywhere and weird right yeah and well and I turned me off to him for a while I was like no I, yeah. I can't handle yeah and I kind of grew up in the bad Santa era where it was like he was doing bad Santa and bad news bears and where he's just oh. kind of like dickhead Billy Bob like funny dickhead oh, guy. I was so pissed when he went into that kind of mode because I saw Sling Blade in the theater and I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. Like, he wrote this, he directed this, he starred in it. Like, he's only directed one other movie since, which, you know, was for the Weinsteins and they didn't give him final cut. So, which is weird because it's a Cormac McCarthy adaptation, which seems perfect for him. Hmm. Yeah, is it all the pretty pretty horses? All, all the pretty horses. It's yeah. good, but it's not the book because again, they made him take his four hour cut down to two. Yeah. So it's so fascinating. For his second film, he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to make a four hour long film. <laughs> Fuck it, you know. I'm I'm, I'm going to use what clout I have to try to get this made. I just didn't sign the smartest contract." Yeah. It's fascinating because he's one of those really old-fashioned kind of movie stars where it's like he's from Texas and he does not give a shit about, like, decorum in any way. Like, he will talk shit about whoever. Like, he doesn't seem like a particularly artistic kind of guy, you know, Mm. like, because he's just so brash and whatever about everything. But, like, when he really, you know, he's written a lot of great movies. He really puts himself into his work. Mm -hmm. I know. I wish he'd write yeah, he has a remarkable amount of range as an actor too. That like I just don't think I ever really realized up until the last few years. Um, so yeah, I, I I love him. I'm glad that I finally came around on him. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping now that he's getting a little bit older, he's gonna fall into like those Robert Duvall type of like old man, cranky old man roles. Uh huh. Or a well, old cranky man. He's kind of stuck in one of those like a lot of actors nowadays. I, I was wondering about Tony Shalhoub earlier. I'm like, where the fuck has Tony Shalhoub been? And he's been in like TV series. Like Billy Bob Thornton's been on Goliath for a long time now. And I'm like, do I, like, is this a thing I need to watch? Like, I don't Supposedly know. Supposedly good. I'm never going to watch it. Sorry. I know. I, I'm never going to get It's so hard to get sure, a new but. TV series or be new into a TV, TV series. It just takes up too much time. Got too much else to watch. Yeah. 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 Oh, apparently he's also in one of those fucking uh, Yellowstone shows too. So like, yeah, it's like if you give me the choice between watching ten episodes or five movies, I'm watching five movies. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's a unless it's a show I know I absolutely need to fucking see, and that list is people. So counterpoint, <laughs> it is also easier for me sometimes. Uh, you know, like when I'm tired and I don't want to think at all. But I'm not tired enough to sleep. It's like I just need lights and noises. I don't. I don't want to think. I don't want to watch a movie that I want to watch. I don't even really want to watch a movie that I've seen before, because then I'm committing to at least ninety minutes. I'm just going to turn on TV, and then three hours later, I should probably go to bed. 
that yeah, but for that, I'm not, doing, I'm not doing a new TV show. I'm doing what I've seen so many fucking times. It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's always like Frasier, or Golden Girls, or something for me. <laughs> like, I I might or might not uh, do a little bit of that with How I Met Your Mother. Mostly, <laughs> like hate watching Ted Mosby and how he's the worst. <laughs> Man, it's funny that that's still your go-to. It's mm. it is a mindless. I mean, show. I've seen every episode of How I Met Your Mother. I can't well, say anything. That was that was my going to bed show for a while. I've I've got theories. It's like one of it's like one of six that I rotate through. Mm. I, it's I, yeah. I mean, it's it the the parts that are funny are funny enough. Uh, that's it. It's funny enough. I've got I started watching now. How I Met Your Father, um, and I couldn't get very far into it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it loses the magic. Anywho, now we're talking about we need to close things out. Dan, where do you want people to find you? You can find me over on Twitter at from HBO to Front Row. And Eric, where are you not there? <laughs> uh, I've very much not been there on Twitter uh, lately, but uh, I am on Twitter at the Chimerican, T H E C H I M E R I C A N. I'm on Instagram at Chimerican Reviews and on Letterboxd at Eric J A Y. And you can follow me slash the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd at Video Monster Pod. You can also follow me personally on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. That's G-A-R-G-Y-L-E because it's a gargoyle wearing an Argyle sweater. And Eric, what should people do if they liked this episode? Uh, they should tell us how much they like this episode by leaving some five-star reviews on whatever podcast app uh, you choose to listen to us on. Uh, and yeah, go follow us on social media and all that stuff, like we said, and share us out to all your friends. Nathan's laughing at me. I don't know why. It was, I always. It, it was the um uh, it was the the speech t- uh, rhythm of when you said uh-huh. go follow, and you were like, and go follow us, and <laughs> it sounded so much like you were about to tell our listeners. Something. To go fuck themselves a little bit. <laughs> You're like, and go follow us on. <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't go fuck yourself. Unless you know that's what you want to do, then go for it. But um, but follow yeah, us. no. Follow us. Share the love, of video monsters. Join us on Discord. All that good stuff. And Dan, what do they have to look forward to coming up? Uh, yeah, you need to stick around because we're gonna take this goddamn podcast intercontinental. Yeah, As we start exploring movies that scare us from other countries in languages that we do not understand. <laughs> like that is movies. a great... <laughs> Nathan just held up a copy of Chaws, C-H-A-W-Z, uh, <laughs> which is a South Korean Jaws ripoff about a pig, I believe. <laughs> that is accurate and also so not an accurate description of what you're going to get from that movie. Yeah, well, I, uh, I have a feeling that might make an appearance. We'll see. <laughs> I have a feeling that we will. It will make an appearance, and we will not be. Yeah, talking I, about I feel it. like <laughs> that is the most Nathan of all Nathan picks that's coming from for us. Oh, no. that is, that is mid range. Me, that's know. so. Chaws is an honest to god, guys. Like seriously, give it a shot. This is not a Nathan pick. This is a movie that you will. Oh, I don't want to say that like that's a bad thing. <laughs> no, no, no. There are movies. No, that, only like, I say Nathan Pick pejoratively. Well, there are movies that I'll say like, oh no, this is totally a me movie. Chaws is a. You know what? This is way better than its American American marketing makes it seem. It is closer in tone to the host. Oh yeah, but with just a a pig rather than um you know a mutated river monster. I- 
I said so. We say we've been saying pig. I assume it's more like a boar, right? Yeah. So, yeah, because okay. he's yeah. got he's got jaws. It's got jaws. <laughs> <laughs> it's jaws. It's so funny. Uh, good title. Good title. <laughs> the, the parts with the giant pig are ridiculous, but <laughs> the rest of the movie is more of yeah, like that South Korean humor horror. But mm-hmm. yeah. It's a it's a lot better than it seems. No, there there are other movies that we have in uh in our survey that are so much more like this is a Nathan pick, and at mm-hmm. least one of them better make it to the end. Oh God, <laughs> I can't imagine which one that would be. Oh, don't tell us! Don't tell us! I don't. Want yeah, to no, no. It's definitely. Well, we'll see. Definitely, it's we'll definitely. See. I, I want to be. I want to be able to get really mad in the moment. Don't don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> it's definitely not Voodoo Apocalypse. I would never push for that one to make it to the end. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, well. So yeah, tune in next time for our popcorn punch out where we will determine which three films we'll be reviewing uh, via our uh, insane uh, video rack attack bracket technology <laughs> that we have conjured up. Technology, yeah, I like and, to call it. Oh, technology. yeah, but there will be new twists to the game this time around. That's true. Yeah, There's brand new twists. There's going to be so much more anger. I I feel like the goddammits are going to increase <laughs> at least threefold in the next episode. Yeah. So those of you who think you have us figured out and know when we're going to swear, be warned. <laughs> it's going to be different this time, and there will probably be new curse words. You ain't heard nothing to, yet. We're gonna have to it, make some it, of them up. We should learn our curse words in other languages so that we can swear in the appropriate languages. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> mm. I I know shit and fuck you in a few different languages. So I'll have to uh, maybe yeah. I'll add those to the soundboard. I'll do some. <laughs> I want to do some research. <laughs> so be sure to uh, take the survey to let us know what movies you want us to cover. If I actually get this episode out early enough for that. Uh, hey, hey, though, but where can you find a link to that survey? <laughs> you can find. I was getting there. If the survey I, is still open, depending on how soon this episode gets out, <laughs> you can find that survey uh, on our link tree. Just go to linkter.ee slash video monster pod. I really wish that they would have a different <laughs> way of doing it. Link linktr.ee slash I like saying linkter.ee linkter yes because everyone knows exactly what is it, and it rolls right <laughs> off the tongue right linktr.ee slash video monster pod uh, the survey is up at the top of that and if it's already closed then the next survey will be up or if we don't have the next one up then the recent episodes will be there just, just go to linktree we, we've got links there uh, also to join us in discord the link is in our linktree uh, it's also in the episode description and so just Scroll down wherever you're listening to this. Click, click on that link. Come join us. Come talk about movies with us. Come tell us why Chaws is a better movie. <laughs> okay, even if it was a stupid movie, I would still watch Chaws. Because honestly, that's why I bought it and that's why I watched it is because I was expecting it to be dumb. And it is less dumb than I thought. Uh, See, that's the, that's the good thing about buying... No, go ahead, Sorry. I said that'll teach you. <laughs> so say that, that's the great thing about buying and watching bad movies is that you can never be disappointed. They can only surprise you. No, I've bought some bad movies that are like, dear God, how has this been made? 
Ah, uh, yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Keep keep coming back. Be a part of this. <laughs> this this love of cinema. All right. That's been it for this episode of Video Monsters, where we take movies seriously, but not ourselves. Good night, everybody. <laughs>